A quick correction before we get started. Um, when we talk about how much of our national debt that China owns, we say $5 trillion during this conversation, and Kathleen wanted me to make sure that you understood that the real number is $1.168 trillion as of January 2018. Okay. Kathleen Trembley. Trembley? Trembley. Okay. Kathleen Trembley. Thank you for... Thank you for uh, talking with me. I've been, I've been watching you on Twitter for quite a while, and um, so uh, I'm glad to finally get to talk to you. Your, your Twitter thing has always been intriguing to me, which is, you know, give me an hour. I'll talk to you privately. I, I swear I'll convince you about MMT. So um, yeah. that's what I'd like to learn about you. I did see your, um, uh, your, the video, the Actify Chat one. Which was cool. Yeah. I liked. I said. I, I said. I liked an analogy. I don't recall the analogy at the moment, but there was something on there that was really, really interesting that you said. So, hello. Thank you for being with me. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Okay. So, um, I mean, the sort of. I don't exactly know what to do. I just like, you know, I'm interested in your spiel, which I okay. sort of heard in the Actify chat, but I'm, you know, obviously I know at least solidly know the basics. I'm pretty sure that you know more than me, and I have to probably ask some questions. Um, but I'm also interested in, like, you know, how you transitioned into MMT and, like, what it was like before, if you even remember how you sort of discovered it, and then, and then, you know, so just sort of take any of that as you, as you wish. Like, what, how did you get okay. into it? What was it like before you discovered it? Okay. Well, my background, my master's degree is in history. And one of the periods of time that I've always been very fascinated in was World War II, as many people are, but I'm not a military person. I'm not like in the military aspect. Like most people during World War II uh, that are really into World War II love the military aspect. And for me, it was, how did we do that? <laughs> how did we, how did we um, become the arsenal of democracy, as they said, you know, at, at the time? Um, how did we go into such massive government spending to do this really major project, which was to, you know, fight this huge world war? You're asking um, how, we, how did we afford it? How did we afford it? Yeah, how did we do that? We are told today we can't afford anything. Right? We are yeah. told we can't do anything. The government can't do anything. You know, it's this, you know. I mean, for us, we're powerless, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for, like, any, when we say we want Medicare for all, when we say, you know, we want uh, something really big to be done on climate change, we, you know, there's so many things that, you know, we want a job guarantee, we want this, we want that, and people just say, you can't have these big things. The best we can do is, you know, come up with these, you know, public-private partnership things, like, and, uh, you know, Obamacare is the best we're going to get, and, um we can tinker around the edges, but we can't do anything really big. Right. And we've been told this for so long. And then when I was looking back at that time, how did we go from $9 billion a year in spending in 1940 to during the war years spending $98 billion a year on average? Wow. Really? I mean, 10 times more? No, 11 times more almost. 11 times more almost, yeah. I mean, it was massive. It was about $300 billion when it was all said and done, and that's about $4 trillion today. Wow. And, 
you know, we're told a year, fourteen million dollars a year, just on not a year, not a year, not a year for the whole for the whole for the whole period. It was four. It was it would have added up to be about four trillion today. Oh, okay, wow. Um, okay. Which is still a lot to be spent in a three and a half year period. In addition to just running the country in general. That was the spending. The spending was ninety eight. We we spent on average as the government spent about ninety eight billion billion a year. Oh, you mean you mean more than just the war? That so that 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 ninety eight billion was the whole the whole spending. budget, the whole okay. Yeah, but remember, okay. in nineteen forty, we were only spending to run everything nine billion. So obviously, most of that spending was the war spending. Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. So so I mean that the nine billion included whatever our military was, and then everything on top of that nine billion was just for extra military. So well. Well, nine billion was running the country at that time. You know, nine billion because we weren't in in the war in 1940. But when we got into the war, all of a sudden we went, as you said, eleven almost eleven times more. We we started spending. So my whole thing was, how did how did we do that then? But we can't seem to do it now. Is there something I'm not understanding? You know, okay. and um, when I came across MNT, I was. Uh, I, I I don't know how I came across it on Facebook, but I came across Real Progressives on Facebook, and I saw Steve Grumbine talking about this MMT thing, and I can't remember who he was interviewing, and I thought that just sounds insane. <laughs> can't be right. And then, but it piqued my interest, and then the more I began to learn about it, I was like, you know, actually this makes sense because not only did we spend all that money during World War II, we continued to spend after the war. We can, we spent on the Marshall Plan. We spent on programs like the GI Bill. We spent on the interstate highway system. These were massive spending programs. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not – even after we ran up the highest debt our country has ever, ever known, which was about 127% of GDP um, – we still continue to spend and do massive things. And some, somehow we had the magic ability back then, but we don't have it today. And so that made me really want to begin to get into this MMT thing that he was talking about. Because the more I started learning it, actually the more things began to make sense about what's wrong with our current system. And at the time, I didn't really fully understand the whole idea of neoliberalism and that we're really living in this sort of neoliberal system and that the whole point of it is to get people to not look at government as a solution for their problems, um, and that the government is has to be this hands-off role in the, in the economy and everything's got to be put into the market. I didn't understand that that's a difference in the last 40 years than what people, how, how government was being run from World War II up to, 19, to the 1980s. I didn't understand there was a difference from, like, 1980 on until I started really looking into this, even though, you know, my background's in history. It was just not recent history that I spent a lot of time wondering about. So when when around were you studying this history? And then when did you encounter, at what point sort of in that process or related to that process, did you discover well, Real Progressives and, and MMT? Well, it was, you know, I got my, my master's back in 2006. So it was a while ago. That, but I was curious, but I, I, whenever I would ask about it, people could never really get into the economics of how, how that happened, how it worked. And I think mainly because people don't know. People didn't, I don't think people can explain that. 
But the thing is with economics, I think, because most of the way economics is taught today is in this more recent orthodoxy, um, you know, from, from, you know, the 70s up to this point, and people don't study. Um, I mean, Bill Mitchell, who's a big MMT economist, says, you know, people go into economics programs and they end up more ignorant um, than before they, before they went in, they end up more ignorant when they come out. Because, because the, books are from, the books are from before the gold standard changed or got split that's, eliminated. That's definitely part of it, but it's also because there's a lot of um, economic orthodoxy that's based on ideology. It's not based on reality. Okay, so so you were, uh, if I'm understanding you, you were sort of just like intrigued during college. Right. But so at what point did that, did you like, what, I guess at what point did you discover real progressives in MNT then? It's that it's like you realized that this is the answer, this explains it. Um, it wasn't until like probably about a year ago that I discovered uh, MNT through real progressives. Um, yeah, it was about a year ago. And um, it didn't. It didn't click at first. It took me a while. It took me probably about seven, eight months for it to click. Mm. And then everything started to make a lot of sense. Um, wow. So were you following real progressives just because they were like all progressive stuff, and that, that kept you on? That kept you sort of watching them. But but the MMC. No, was it was sort the of... MMC. It was the MMT stuff because he, when they when Steve would talk about MMT and he'd begin to explain it. I knew at one point we did massively spend for the public purpose, right? We were able to do this at one point. And now we we don't do that anymore. And so the things that he was talking about, I was like, yeah, we've done this. Why can't we do it now? And this economic concept, um, even though it's really, it's MMT is just a description of how our monetary system works. It is an actual real description not an ideological um, description of how things works, but the actual way it functions. And when I would hear him talk about it, I would say, this makes far more sense of how we were able to do this, where today I can't find a lot of people that can explain how we did it. I mean, a lot of it would be Internet research that I did on my own, trying mm-hmm. to figure out how we, how we did this, how did we pay for it, why can't we do that today? I'm really uh, I'm really interested. I'm really interested. You said it started. You said it sort of took you like seven, eight months for it to sort of sink in. Yeah. How in the world did you? How in the world did it keep your attention for that long, for sort of a bell to ring? Like, what, how, why would you keep well, listening no, to something? I, I do it like I always learn things. I dip in and I dip out. You know, I kind of, you know, I, I start learning stuff for a while, and then I'm like, I get distracted by something else that's going on in my life, and then I go back to it. You know, um, so it wasn't. It wasn't a consistent education and maybe that's why it took so long to for it to fully click with me um but when it did it was very exciting i mean my big i think when i really began to start to understand it was when i listened to stephanie kelton's um angry birds and deficits uh youtube video and anybody's interested that is where i would recommend anybody would really start um if they're you know they want to just have a quick introduction to the big understandings of MMT. So describe, if you remember, describe sort of the aha moment for you. 
Oh gosh, I don't. I think it was one of those where I was. Um, I, I don't know if I, I was asleep or if I was going to sleep or if I just woke up in the middle of the night. I can't remember how it all happened, but I, but I know it was at night. And I know I just sat there and I was like, oh, my gosh, this all makes sense. Hmm. It's all completely – I get the whole big picture now. I can put hmm. it all – I can put things together that I've been sort of piecing together. Um, and, and you immediately remember not, your your history, the, the interest in the World War II, and then all of a sudden that made sense? Yes, World War II started to make sense. I was able to make sense of World War II. That was the big thing. Like, I was, without having anybody else go, this is how we did World War II, I was like, oh, this would make, this is, according to modern monetary theory, this would be essentially how they did it, without having hyperinflation or any of those things that people typically think you get whenever you spend. It's like and a so sixth sense realization. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that that thing where you just, it takes a while for your brain to process it all. And then all of a sudden when it does, and it all sort of comes together, it's like an immediate big deal realization for you. You know, sometimes you just have a moment in your life where you're like, I'm not going to be the same after this moment because I just have this big, you know, moment of putting things that I've learned together into something bigger than... Than, than I knew it was, you know. That's interesting. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I assume you know who Jeff Ginter is? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah so he, he lives local, and I found real – I'm pretty sure that I found Real Progressives because of Jeff Ginter, because I've known him for a while. Um, you know, he he's did it. excellent. He's excellent. I, I really enjoy his videos. He's uh, – I have a lot of respect for him. I like him and I have a lot of respect for him because he's one of those people, he just wants to talk about MMT and Medicare for all and there's just like no distractions, nothing personal, nothing. It's just so enjoyable talking with him because it's just so hyper-focused on, like he's the person that pushed me over the edge. He actually actually dragged me because I really really (laughs) never even knew, I never even really paid attention. Uh-huh. I mean, I never, you know, I heard, I hear deficit and whatever, and I never was like, it never even hit me. It was just like, you know, that's something not for me. That's that's something inaccessible to me. That's something that I can't handle. Right. And I think everybody thinks that about economics. That's not right. So it, yeah. Right. So I, I didn't even really try to understand it. But then Jeff, I don't remember how it got into it, but he was just like, he started saying, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, and he just, like, kept me on the phone for, like, an hour. <laughs> and and I didn't really understand what I was listening to. And and then at the end, uh, I, I watched a Stephanie Kelton video. And, like, my head was sort of spinning. I couldn't really process it. But then I was watching Stephanie Kelton, and I couldn't – I still couldn't process it, but I could tell that this was the tip of something important. And right, so right. so he so Jeff and I did two live streams where all he did was teach me. And it was really oh, wow. cool. It was exciting. It was exciting for like people that know it to see someone, you know, see that happen to someone, see like sort of the the realizations happen. So that was really exciting. So it was a real fast process for me. It was really intense and fast because I didn't even know, like you had been intrigued by something for, for years and I didn't even know it was really a subject. And he just sort of dragged me down the rabbit hole as fast as possible. <laughs> um, so, and I'm definitely really cool. Yeah. Um, so how did you, you learned it yourself and then how did the, 
sort of the interest in starting to teach it to others happen for you? Well, it was like once it clicked for me, I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to tell everybody about this. <laughs> I want to explain this to so many people because I can't, you know, look, I'm not an economist and I'm not an MMT economist. I'm not um, somebody who's uh, uber well-versed in it, but I was like, anybody can understand these basic, the basics of it. Um, and it can be explained to somebody, you know, um, and I, I, my belief was it could be explained to anybody, anybody who's really interested. Now, it's hard to get somebody who's like, I'm not really interested in what you have to say to be interested in what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But that's why I was like, if you're interested, <laughs> you know, just DM me and, you know, I'll set up, a, you know, a Google chat or something and we can talk about this, you know. And it's not like a lot of people have taken me up on it, but, you know, um, the fact that there are people that are interested and maybe maybe more people will as as more information gets out about it. I think a lot of people are um, a little hesitant for the same reasons because I think economics, everybody, the crazy thing about the progressive movement is everybody knows so much of, so much of our problems is about economics, but yet they often feel that economics is not something they can understand. Um, yes. But yet they know instinctively there's something wrong with our economic system. There's something, you know, we can see that we, we know about, we know wealth inequality is real. We see, we see the numbers of what these billionaires are worth. Um, we see the fact that there are just, you know, Flint's water isn't getting taken care of. We see, you know, um, there are just huge parts of the country that are just being ignored by local, state, and federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know there's something instinctively going wrong. We know there's this economic thing. A lot of people know about neoliberalism in, in the progressive movement, but wanting to really understand the truth about economics, I think, can still seem a bit intimidating. And I think maybe even for some people, they think, well, that MMT, is that even real? Is that a, that is, I mean, so many people are, are so tied to the orthodoxy that they, they, um, they can't see anything else. They, they almost, they, they almost like question it like, oh, this is just an online phenomenon or, you know, something like that when it's actually, you know, for me, it was like I looked at an economic phenomena from the past and I said, we had to, been, if we could do it then, we have to be able to do it now. And that's why this made sense. And, and that's way, way bigger. That's a way bigger scale than we would need to do it today. Most likely, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think we, we may have to do something. We wouldn't have to go into the rationing, like right, like what they typically do, do during the war, because what they do is they have to shrink the consumer economy in order to yeah, make like, room for the military production. Like war but, bonds and so on. Well, yeah, war bonds played a role in that. But they literally had to, you know, like not one new car was built during World War II. There's not one new car that rolled off an assembly line. Because and I understood that that was the reasoning for the war bonds, because because they couldn't buy cars and people wanted to buy cars. They didn't have the car. They could, they weren't producing the cars because it was going into tanks and whatever. So they said, yeah, support, the war bonds the were to, right was to pull money out of the economy. It was to for for a short period of time to make people put their money into something for a period of time so that they wouldn't spend it. Now, the way people at the time understood it, the way it was often explained to them, because I think they just thought this makes more sense to people, was you're paying for the war. But really what they needed to do was have people take their money, put it into a bond, wait 10 years, and then get the money once the war was over and once the production was back, the consumer production was back to normal levels and people could use that to purchase things at that time. Then, you know, so that that was the big purpose for the... For the it's voluntary. Bonds, they weren't producing as much. 
It's voluntary taxes. It's voluntary taxes. Bonds are voluntary taxes. As if they're there, but but the difference between the taxes is once once you're taxed, that money goes away. Yeah, exactly. It's a temporary voluntary tax. It's people yeah. are choosing to destroy their money, but they're being paid with that money back in X years with interest. Right, but not not destroyed. It's just it sits there in a bond. And yeah, okay. It gains interest, and you can cash it in, and you get that money back at a later date. And that was, you know, delayed gratification, but what were you going to buy with it during the war anyways? So um, right. it worked out really well for people. People came out of the war with savings instead of now we have we have young people today that we just, they go through the college system and they come out with, you know, enormous amounts of debt. My grandparents as young people came out with out of the war with savings and were able to use that money for more bonds to buy, to help buy their first home. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So do you have an uh, do you have a good experience of someone contacting you and they they, they turned around because of you? Um, not like a success around. story. Not not turned around. Not been like oh I don't believe this. Um, it was just more like they you know people were interested. So yeah, I've had people that are like didn't know anything about it or just wanted to learn about it and were like oh and we're beginning to make connections. Whether they made the big you know aha moment you know for themselves. It's hard to say, but you start to see that, oh, okay, okay. Now, whether they took, you know, you know, there's, there's a moment where you learn things, and then there's a moment where you put it all together into something bigger, and okay. that, doesn't, that doesn't absolutely happen, you know. One person that I've talked to, he knew a lot. He kind of was, was dabbling it. He was kind of learning it the way I did, which was dipping into different parts of it and learning different things and listening to different videos, but not always getting the full picture either. So I think that was one of those moments where we kind of had a, a conversation where he was going, oh, okay, you know. What about he was, he was at the precipice of that, so, you know, it was just, he was right there, but about to do it himself, you know. Okay. What about any failures? Um, like, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you an example okay. that I, that I experienced. I, I approached, uh, I was at the, uh, a local candidate named Peter Jacobs. He's a friend and he lives about an hour and 20 north. He's, um, running for the second time, or a revolution endorsed and all that. And he sort of understands MMT. I, did, I, I learned after the fact. I interviewed him last two weeks ago. Um, but he had a town hall for Medicare for All. And it was great. It was great. Mm-hmm. And he had two two presenters. Mm-hmm. And one of them was one of the gentlemen who was on the Internet Town Hall with Bernie for, for the Medicare for All in January. So, I mean, this guy really knows his stuff. Like, he's incredibly knowledgeable on what the problem is and what the solution could be. And so this town hall was really interesting from that point of view. But he brought up the pay-for question. He brought up uh, we can tax the rich. And so yeah, yeah. I approached him afterwards, and I said, I love what you said, except this one thing. And he basically laughed me off, and it was a little humiliating. But, I mean, it's like how, how can I, you know, he's, he's not, he didn't ask me to approach him. I'm, I'm a young-looking guy. He, you know, it's totally out of the blue. So it's not like, like, it's not like I can be totally shocked about it. But right. I even said, you have access to Stephanie Kelton. Ask her. Do taxes pay for anything at the federal level? And he said, I would be embarrassed to ask that. And so, you know, I sent him information. <laughs> I said, I sent him information from Stephanie Kelton, like tweets, like real easy to understand. I mean, what else can I do? But that was like, 
I actually, wow. uh, Jeff and I went to, a, he happened to be there, so Jeff and I went to a diner afterwards and we talked and I have a podcast up about that. And it was the whole, a lot of the podcast was about what happened and it's like, how do you approach people who don't want to be approached but are like really important to approach? Like media, like the Young right. Turks. I just heard a, a show, a oh. segment tonight where, you know, the whole thing is great but the framing is just completely wrong and they're, they were saying, you know, we should be taxing the wealthy, which is fine. But then it was like, what would you want? What would, what would people want to use that money for if we, if we got that money from the wealthy? What would people choose to use that money for? Right. And it's just like, oh, gosh. It's just like they're so far. They're so good with most of it. But then they destroy right. they, they sabotage it with this. And I really feel the progressive movement is, is – I really feel the progressive movement – has a huge albatross around its neck, a huge chain on it, ball and chain yeah. kind of a thing. That that it's just like we have everything we need, except for the one absolute thing that's going to get us what we need. Like we have all the yeah, information, it's, but it's that final step that we actually get what we want. Hardly any progressives have that. You're right. You're right. It's it because you know it's that hamster on a wheel thing because all it does is become. What happens is, right now, you see on the Young Turks people talking about uh, Trump's tax plan. And the tax plan, you know, agreed. It's awful. Almost everything's going to the wealthy. The wealthy are the ones that are benefiting the most from Trump's tax bill. But you can, you can criticize it on that and what it's doing for wealth inequality. But when you start bringing the deficit and the debt into it, guess what? They get to, they get to use that when we want to do big spending programs. So that doesn't work. Who's you they? Start in, your, in your story. The Republicans. I'm sorry, the Republicans. Okay. The Republicans will turn around and they'll go, and some Democrats, as we know, because we already know Hillary Clinton was going, well, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Those are ponies. You know, we can't uh-huh. have these things. And so, um, you know, it's, the, it's, it's, it's that political football that gets thrown back and forth. And, and you hear MMT economists talk about Let's stop playing the pay for game. Let's stop saying how we're going to pay for it. Look, if we can, we can pay $700 billion for war, you know, if we've got the money for that, then we've got the money for these other things. And, you know, without even, even having to talk about, you know, getting into, you know, taxes, don't fund spending, because that might be a little bit much for some people who are just sitting there watching the news cold, right? To totally grasp, right? But, and say, you know, look, we, we have the money. We always have the money because we always have the money for war. Uh, we know this. So we can, we can do Medicare for all and we can do all these other things. And as, as you know, and you and I know, and I was just um, having a conversation with some people and I said, you know, actually, we may not need to tax at all if we do Medicare for all. Right. Matter of fact, we might want to cut taxes. We might want to cut the Medicare tax, not increase it or not tax at all. It's hard to say exactly, you know, they're, you know, as we know, they have to run models and stuff like that. But if people understood that it's about spending in the overall economy and how that affects things, then, then they could begin to understand. And if they understood sort of like the basic things that we understand, like the currency user versus the currency issuer, that the dollar is a tax credit, that, you know, the government, the federal government funds us, we don't fund it, you know, taxes are not necessary to fund spending at the federal level. 
and you know that the that the you know the deficit is a surplus and the uh, national debt is actually a currency user's savings account. I mean, and it's about it should be about balancing the economy, not balancing a budget. If people understood that, you know, it'd be much easier to explain these things. But I I like how they're you know the sort of there are some people out there, and I even see this. I don't know. You know who Connie Ella Ang is? Uh, Hawaii uh, congressional right. candidate. Yeah, and he's he's um, on board with MMT. And mm. there's another guy who's already in Congress, um, Schatz, I believe his name is, and he's from Hawaii as well. And he's had, he recently put out an even more ambitious uh, free college plan. Uh, more ambitious than Bernie's, which went, went, it went beyond tuition. It also went towards paying for uh, room and board and things like that. Hmm. And um, when asked how he was going to pay for it, he said, "I don't play the pay for game." And you know that you know I remember Stephanie Kelton tweeting tweeted tweeting you know this this you know this is how you do it. This <laughs> is you don't even play their game. You say you know we've got the money. I heard Stephanie Kelton say that on a podcast. I didn't know the name, but she said someone from Hawaii, a, a congressman from Hawaii, was, was talking about some progressive program and then was asked the pay for question. And he said, I'm not playing that. I'm not, I'm not, we're not talking about that now. We're not talking about that now. Yeah. That's, a, you know, that's a trap. And that, that quote yeah. plus another quote in that same podcast inspired me to write an article of don't, you know, pay for, basically an article of don't get caught in the pay for trap. Like a, that, something about that really made it click. Um, right, and if you notice, there are people, and now people are sitting when, jo- when Bernie came out with the job guarantee. Um, people were going, "Well, how is he going to pay for?" It? He won't even say how he's going to pay for it. And right. Someone, someone said, like, he, he just flailed his arms and walked away. Oh, great! Now he doesn't, you know, now he's irresponsible spending kind of a thing. Right, right, and the thing is, he does know. You know, he he has an idea. I mean, of course, Stephanie Kelton was his lead economist, so I mean, he he knows. I don't know if he feels fully comfortable. And how to handle it politically, but you know, the fact of the matter is the reason why he's not playing that game. The reason he's he's just not saying, you know, we're going to steal from Peter to pay Paul. So then automatically, because that is the moment, then they can go. Well, this isn't going to work. This won't well, even work. We even on even on uh, Friday, um, you know that protest. Uh, that Bernie was in Philly, and someone protested him, ran on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my friend, and I interviewed him before and after. But that's an aside. Um, uh, um, Bernie, even on Friday, even while Billy was standing behind him with his megaphone and the cops were like all over him, Bernie was saying we should tax the wealthy. Oh, no, we should, instead of giving tax breaks to millionaires, we should be using that money to pay for infrastructure. And so I consider that one of his biggest flaws. Right. Is fully. Not that he won't. Not that it's not a problem. I don't have a problem with him necessarily not teaching MMT. That's like, that's a big ask. Like, I understand that. I mean, I do think that he has, he has now gained the trust of millions and that he could somehow start that. But still, I'm not, I'm not, I don't necessarily think it's horrible that he's not teaching MMT. What I have a real problem with, though, is that he, at least, well, in 2016, he put out a big document of how we're going to pay for, like, all of his programs, every yeah. single one. And I really tried to study that thing. And mm-hmm. whenever, whenever someone um, brought up during the 2016 election, whenever someone brought up 
whatever, I would like list off the things from that document. And it would always turn into a fight, and we'd never talk about Medicare for all. You know, we never talk about the programs. Mm-hmm. We'd always go, well, wow, now we can't. Uh, right. Now, you know, right. that's all distracting. I and mean, that's, that's the point. That's, a, that's one of the points. Um, that's why they always want to know how you're going to pay for it, how you're going to pay for it. And the right. thing is, when but, people but, but, hold say, on, I, I, have, I have something important to finish that with, which is, okay. remember what you're about to say, please. Okay. Is, is that the fact... Yeah, it's not the fact that he's it's not the fact that he's not teaching it. I don't have a problem with that. It's the fact that he's sabotaging everybody like you and me who wants to teach it. That's my problem with what right. he's doing. Right. If you don't wanna if you don't wanna teach it, that's one thing. But don't sabotage it with misinformation. And I think he's starting to I think he's starting to think about that, but you know, like what I just said that he said on Friday, he still is he still is putting that kind of thing. Instead of taxing the rich, we should be you know, using that for infrastructure and Medicare for all and whatever. So forgive me, what were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, he can still talk about taxing the rich, but for reasons that they really need to be taxed, like for, right. you know, really changing the behaviors of, of like, the, you know, have a, have a speculation tax to have a speculation tax. We should be deterring the kind of Wall Street bubble speculation that goes on. Like, we should be deterring, you know, people from, polluting and doing all these things, you know, that you can't run a business. You won't be able to run a business. Well, all the possible things that you can do that could ruin the environment as a business, we're going to tax you. You know, that's, I don't have a problem with, you know, like tax for that, those reasons to change the way people do things, to change um, what's acceptable, uh, particularly with, I think, with climate change in particular. I think you can do a lot of taxing the rich. Um but don't make it about that's how we'll get the money because then you're creating the whole situation that we are dependent upon the money from the people, the currency users. We need their money. The currency issuer, which is absolutely absurd that the currency issuer needs to get money from currency users of the, of the currency it itself issues, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to help fund things. Like that's just when, when you learn MMP, you start to realize how ludicrous that concept is. And they don't need our you know, the federal government never needs our money. So right. let's not make it about that we have to go without because we Until. need to do these bigger things. Right. Fidel Kaboob. He he taught me he taught me a number of stuff, like buffer stock. It was like really really that was really interesting when I first heard him talk about that. And the true origin of money, you know, that the money the government says you'll pay taxes in the very first year or the very first day. And you'll use dollars, and they'll be like, what's a dollar? So that like emphasizes or really brings it home that, that spending comes first. And right. so what, one thing that he said was, one thing that Fidel Kaboom said was, um, you know, we shouldn't be fighting these wars because they're too expensive. And, that's, and then he says, so if they were cheap, we should be fighting these wars. Right. No, you, right. you, you, no, you, you, you oppose war because it's, so it's, a, it's unjust. It's immoral. Yes. You oppose income inequality. You, you tax the wealthy because this level of inequality is immoral. immoral. And same with the wall. You don't not build the wall because it's expensive. You not build the wall because it's unjust. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the one thing that the Democrats since the 1980s have conceded. The, you know, they are not the moral ones. Oh, it's the Republicans. You know, they've conceded morality to the Republicans. And, and oh. Republicans are extremely immoral. But they will never go after them. But part of the problem is because the only way they could really fight them 
on, I mean, they have been successfully fighting on, you know, moral, morality in the cultural sense of sort of like how we treat people who are homosexual, how we treat people Stuff that does not affect the pocketbook of the wealthy. Right. Something that does not affect the pocketbook of the wealthy. But if you, but the only way we're going to um, get people to vote in mass for progressives is we have to be able to go after, and I think most, most true progressives, real progressives, are willing to do it. They want to go after the economic argument. And so, yeah, let's make it about how much the war is costing us. Let's make it about how wrong the war is. And a lot of progressives do talk about that. There's no doubt about it. But that's where it should always be, about what's really going on with the war, who's dying, who is, who's making out from this war, who's, mm-hmm. who's benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. And keep it on that and not being like, and all the money we spend on the war. You're like, no, let's, you know, all, the, all, all your tax dollars are going to this. You know, it'd be, it's funny to be able to say to somebody, you know, actually, you, your tax dollars don't go to war <laughs> at all. But who you decide to put into Congress has an effect on how much we end up spending on the war. Yeah, um, and nobody nobody pays attention until after the primary is over when it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. There, you know, you often hear, well, what I've heard before was like, you need to decouple. And this is what Stephanie, this is the other thing that Stephanie Kelton said in that podcast that inspired an article is you need to decouple what you want with how you're going to get it, pay for it. Right. You need to decouple that. But it's actually three, it's, there's actually three issues that people mash into one. And it's what you want, Medicare for all. It's how you're going to pay for it. Well, there's people ready and waiting to do it. That's how you pay for it. And mm-hmm. society's injustices. People mash all of those three things together into one. And it's so confusing. How we want Medicare for all we will pay for it by taxing the rich, which is all three things, society's injustices, how are we going to pay for it, and what do we want? So, you know, talking about Medicare for all in that situation is impossible. But the real danger, beyond just like this misunderstanding, the real I think the real sort of sinister thing behind this, behind this misinformation, and the Democrats, I I do not see as good faith actors. Um, No, not me neither. Yeah is class warfare. That all of this, oh, yeah. all of this pits, this pay-for question pits the, the powerless against the powerful. If we have to get right. money from the military, then we have to fight those who care about the military or security of our country. If we want to tax the wealthy because we, want to, we need the money right. to, in order to pay for something, then that pits us against, you know, oh, you want to penalize success kind of nonsense. And right. That's, a, that's a, like, I think, one of the most important reasons to get away from this pay-for question because it starts, it's class warfare and the powerless always lose. Right. No, exactly. And it, 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 the moment they say, you can say, how are you going to pay for it? Then you give the ground for the other side's argument. Then they can, then they can come after you, you know. Um, if you just say, you know, we can pay for it, <laughs> you know. We're not going to play it. We've we, we got the money. We can pay for this. You know, aside, you know, then they can't come back with anything. They can't come back with the class warfare. Well, well, those people worked hard. How, you know, how dare you take it from them? And there's a lot of Americans that I think it's becoming, though, I do have to say, the argument of, well, they earned it and they, they got where they're at. There's still a lot of Americans that will follow that, but I think there are a lot of people that are falling away from that, but we don't have the time to wait right. for the right. country to get on board with those ideas, with the idea that, you know, look, 
somebody having $100 billion is a bit much, don't you think? You know, although I yeah. know there are, I see people who are Republican friends of mine on Facebook getting pretty sick of how these, how wealthy certain people are becoming in comparison to everybody else. Oh, that's good news. There's, you do see that they are beginning to see the, the injustice of it. Some people are, but it's not a guarantee mm-hmm. that they all will. And if they continue to watch Fox News, they're going to get distracted from it or they're going to be, they're always going to go back to the whole thing. Well, they worked for what they have and they earned it. And Please, yeah. Yeah, it's all hard work. They worked, they worked almost infinitely more harder than, the, uh, than us, which is why they have right. infinitely more money than us. Like, that's humanly possible. Right, but, exactly. There isn't enough hours in the day to, to justify them earning that much money. And I always like Fran Lebowitz's quote, which is, nobody earns a billion dollars, they steal a billion dollars. And that's, yeah, I believe it's yeah. very like, true. Like, like Nancy Pelosi, she's worth $100 million. She went into government, not a millionaire, and now she's worth $100 million. And she had some speech a couple months ago about income inequality. And then someone yeah. said, well, how much are you worth, Nancy? She says, oh, we're not talking about that. What? What? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, I think a good answer, I think the answer, I haven't really tried it, but I think uh, the answer that I want to try with how we're going to pay for it is I have no problem talking about that, but that's that's a conversation for another day. And then you can get right. In, right into MMT and have a debate about that. But it's like, Right now, I'm talking about Medicare for All or the Federal Drug Guarantee, and I have no problem talking about how are we going to pay for it, but not now. Now is the time right. to talk about the benefits of the program and why right. it's a good thing and why it's better than UBI and all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, we can schedule a time or we can talk as much as you want about how are we going to pay for it. I have no problem with that, but just not right. now. They're two separate conversations. Yeah, and, 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 and I think some people will then, you know, uh, like the one thing that they like to do is be like, well, they, they don't have an idea. That's why they're saying that. Um, but I do think you do have to kind of decouple what you're doing from what, and, and you're always going to have the critics that come out there, but I don't think they will have a strong enough argument if all their argument is, oh, they just don't know, you know. Yeah. Because people do know we have money. We, 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 we always seem to have money for the things that we want to have money for, which never seem to benefit the people at large. What the, what the power, what the masters of the universe want. Yeah, of course. And then, and there's never a conversation about it. It just happens. Like the seven hundred billion dollars for war, yeah. this was like almost I instantaneous. I don't. I actually think there was no debate. There was actually no debate about it no, in there Congress. Was no debate. There was no. I don't even think there was. It, there wasn't even much talk. I don't think there was any even news coverage until after it happened. And I think that was absolutely deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So. This is a question. This is a question that I that I I think I'm starting to enjoy asking everyone, which is before. Like, well, first the first question is when did you sort of wake up? When did you sort of wake up to like in general? Like for me, for me the answer is easy. It was Bernie, and he set me yeah. up. Oh. He, he he taught me uh, that money in politics is the root of everything, all all of life's yeah. problems, and then that led me to. February, I learned MMT, and then soon after that, I learned uh, manufactured consent. And those are like the three oh, right. big lessons. Those are like the three sort of big life lessons for me as far as waking up. And, but Bernie started it all. Before him, I was completely asleep, completely. Like, I didn't realize, I thought CNN was actual news before Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I, re- I, I really did. I really did. And it was the first, it was the first, it was coverage of the first debate. Like, you know, headline, Hillary dominated first debate. And I watched it and I was like, 
blown away. What? I, I was we, didn't, bl- we didn't watch the same debate. <laughs> I was blown. No, no, I wasn't blown away by the headline. I was blown away by Bernie, like his introduction. You know, they had there was five of them, and mm-hmm. you know, all all the four of the five were like, you know, I this, I that, I this, I that. I've done so much of this and that. And then Bernie is like, we live in a country where half the population is poor, and and you know, then top one, and it was just like, whoa, that's different. That's different. Yeah. Something's different about this guy. You know, that's that was like sort of the beginning of. Um, you know, I, I started to really becoming interested in him, and then Tom Hartman later pushed me over the edge into becoming a fanatic with his uh, <laughs> com- comparing him to FDR thing. Um, I lost track of what I was saying. But um, so, when did you wake up? That was my question. When did you wake up? It was a similar. It had to do with Bernie. It was, but for me, it was. So I, you know, I knew who Bernie was for a few years. I really liked him. I thought, God, wouldn't it be great if somebody like Bernie Sanders ran for president? But I was like, that'll never happen. But I was still, I would still call myself somebody who, 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 who looked at the world through a neoliberal perspective. I was, you know, just as, you know, neoliberally in a way. You know, I was the person that, I, I, well, I can, actually, I would have to say it, it was losing faith in the whole Obama thing. Losing uh-huh. faith in Obama. That, I guess really the seed started right from the beginning with the bank bailout and all of that. I began to question it, but I always did the thing that most of us do, and you see it still with so many people on Twitter where they just, if, if it's the Republicans that did it, then it's awful. But we will never be honest about how Democrats behave. Never, never, never. And yeah, all problems are the Trump kind of a thing. Right, right. We went into complete denial, you know, with Obama when Obama started doing things like, bailing out the banks and nobody going to jail and them getting their bonuses and doing all this stuff and not going, what the hell? Because, you know, I feel, I, I feel a little less stupid when I hear, you know, um, people interview Thomas Frank and Thomas Frank says, you know, I thought Obama was going to be like the next FDR because that's how I thought of him too. And so it was sort of beginning to go, something's wrong. That was when I was beginning to it, but I, I couldn't fully admit it to myself. And then with the 2016 primary with Bernie, and I was so excited that Bernie went into the race, and I thought, well, you know, he'll, he'll, maybe he can push her, her further left. Um, I didn't know he was, it was going to be this big movement. I did not know there was going to be, he was going to be, you know, talking to crowds. I mean, it was very similar to, like, what happened with Obama, where all of a sudden everybody began to know who he was, and he was pulling in these huge crowds. But unlike Obama, they were covering it, and they weren't covering Bernie. And they weren't, and then you had MSNBC, that was surprisingly critical of Bernie or not covering him at all. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I started noticing, you know, something's up. Something That's interesting. Very, something very strange. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. I hadn't thought of it that way. The fact that they're not covering him shows that something's different, shows that they don't like something about him. Yeah. What was he doing that, you know, Obama, Obama was okay, but then now Bernie, who's having the same sort of effect on the electorate, but they're, but they're going no. We're not gonna. We're not giving this guy any oxygen, and that began because right away when he got in, I was supporting him from the get go because I did mm-hmm. like him so much more than Clinton. But I didn't think he had a real chance initially, you know, until a few months in, and all of a sudden he started catching fire, and mm-hmm. he went from the three percent name recognition to all of a sudden everybody was just, people were beginning to really talk about Bernie Sanders, not to the degree that would have happened had the media given him the time mm-hmm. that they were anywhere near what they would with Trump, and Trump was considered a phenomenon, but they ignored the Bernie Sanders phenomenon completely because, right. you know, I began to realize 
you know, it's because he's talking about economic inequality. He's talking about really doing something about it. He's talking right. about what it was, you know, when Wall, um, Occupy Wall Street was ended by the, you know, essentially by the Obama administration, when they kind of finally said, no, we're, we're done with this. Um, you know, when that happened, I began to really begin to realize there's something about economics in our country that no one's willing to go back to a real new deal. No one's willing to do it. And Obama's not going to do it. And Bernie was coming up with these ideas that were very New Dealian. You know, they were very much like a New Deal. Mm-hmm. And everyone had to stifle him. And then when I started, the big, and also the, also the big thing that happened was I read Thomas Frank's List and Liberal. No, I have it on my yeah. iPad. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, I, that spun my head around. And probably, you know, you know, a lot of people... Like Jimmy Jimmy Dore and a lot of other people talk about what Thomas Franks talked about. So mm-hmm. I think those ideas are out there, and you'll probably go, yeah, 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 yeah. But for me, when I read it, it was just like what it was was I had this internal ping inside of me, like what was I couldn't figure out what was wrong, and it was reading Thomas Franks' book that made me go, that's what's happening, that's what's going on. So briefly now summarize that. Uh, well, essentially, it's you know that the Democratic Party has been for some time, you know, co-opted by the moneyed interest. The same, the, 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 yeah, there are some differences between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but when it comes especially to economics, that they have been since Clinton, and really, I mean, as Thomas Frank says, Clinton is like the bad guy of his book, you know, that Clinton really sort of made the Republicans' dreams come true. You know, yeah. he was the one that was, able to pass a lot of the legislations that the Republican that the Republicans uh, would love to have done. But mm-hmm. if you could get a Democrat to do it, that was how you got it done. And he was that he yeah. was that guy because he sort of he um you know he stood for some cultural changes for sure, right? But he was he really internalized the Reagan revolution and tried to make cultural, that cultural what cultural I can't even think of any cultural changes that he was positive. It was about. more I mean, like his attitude, you know what I mean? Like he his, seemed fresh and new, and he was charisma. Himself. I mean, him and Obama yeah, charisma. 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 I mean, that's why it was. He was talking to young people and stuff like that. And we didn't. I mean, from from when I was young, you know, it was it was Reagan and Bush, you know, for mm-hmm. and then when I was a, a voting age, by the time Clinton came along and I was voting age, it seemed like he was talking to young people. I was very excited by him. I was very excited by him, um, but I didn't know why. He just sounded cool. I mean, I don't remember really, really understanding, like, this is why I like him. But, I mean, Clinton and Obama, they were charismatic. They were both very charismatic. Right. Like, they were easy right. to listen to, easy to digest. And but it felt reason- like they were going to do things for, you know, they were, gonna, they were going to be more, you know, liberal. They were going to do things for minorities. They were going to do things for women. It felt like they were going to. You know? I, I agree. But it was, different than, it was different with Bernie because Bernie wasn't, I mean, He's charismatic in his own way, but that's not what really attracted me to him. It was it was the truth of what he was saying. The the it wasn't him that that attracted me. It was what he was saying and his reputation yeah. that it might actually come to pass. Or like, at least he, if he got into office, that it would come to pass. Like he his stump speech was the same thing every single time, and you know I couldn't get enough of it because it was this, it was a lesson. It was a lesson. Right. And in the yeah. center of that lesson was money and politics. 
Yeah, he's got an educator in him. He's got a teacher in him. Like that's definitely part of Bernie Sanders' personality. Is he's 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 an educator naturally. Um, he's good about getting those points across and explaining things. That he's he and he has he has real policies to back up his ideas. Whereas you know with with Clinton and with Obama, we found out it was largely platitudes. It wasn't. They weren't going to do anything really big ever. And, and it was. Near the end of Obama's, I mean, even I mean, even now, but especially like around when uh, uh, No Dapple, when he said we're just going to let it play out for for a few weeks, which was just like oh, how disgusting, how absolutely disgusting that you have to even think about this. Right, and, right, and but, let it play but, out for those people. Right, but 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 what really what really stands out to me is that I see in him that the dichotomy of being a charismatic speaker who really cares, but being completely bought and you can't do anything that you say. Like he's just, right. he's, he's, it, it is, it made him really tired. It made him really tired to have to sort of live that, that contradiction. I have, you know, I, I guess I have a less of a, of a, of a sympathy for him. I, I kind of, you know, I think, I think he knew what he was getting into. I think he knew, because from the get-go, when, when the whole thing with the banks happened, he had a meeting with the bankers. And he said, yeah. Look, they want your blood. They're out for blood, and I'm going to protect you from them. Mm. And this was the role from the get-go. He knew yeah. That's true. And That's true. I always have a lot of, like, you know, he, he wanted to be president. It was, I think he's a very striving person. He wanted to be president. This was a dream of his. He... He had to make the deals and do the things that he had to do to become president. Now, maybe when he was younger, he was much more idealistic and, you know, obviously he was a community organizer. And I think maybe he had um, kind of dreams of doing big things. But I think at a certain point, it just became becoming the first black president. He made a deal with the devil. I mean, there's nothing you can do once you do that. Right. Once you've sold out, then you are completely... Because it was really interesting because he was so, um, he, he seemed like a real fighter. You know, he had a lot of feistiness and, and a lot of, you know, there's so much power behind his, his voice and the way he would talk. And on the stuff, he was, he was really, he, he seemed like somebody who, and this is, I think, why people thought he might be the next FDR is because FDR relished fighting the powers that be. I mean, yeah, he, he, he had to, you know, the times he had to compromise, but I mean, and have this sort of like, hey, look, guys, it's either this or revolution. You know, what are you going to do? But he actually, I mean, he had to really go to bat for things like Social Security and really mm-hmm. fight powerful people. And he enjoyed it. He liked that fight. Yeah, the little line Obama, about the, if they hate me or I, I relish that hate or something like that. Right, right. He, he, that was the type of, of person he was, whereas, like, Obama seemed to me that he seemed like that kind of guy, but the moment he became president, he was Joe cool. Nothing bothered him. Hmm. And that's, you're not going to get anything done with that. You're not going to get done, anything done with a guy who was culturally cool, but had no, all of a sudden, that feistiness that he had in, in winning the presidency. All of a sudden. Interesting. Uh, you know, his speech, his original speech from the previous Democratic convention before he ran um you know his we're not a we're not a red this is not a red country or a blue country this is a no this is not a red state or a blue state this is the united states of america and it was like 
Right. It was like, wow, it was an awesome speech. I, I didn't think it was a substantial speech, but it was a really inspiring sort of preachery kind of speech. And it was... Right. That was what launched him, and for good reason. I mean, it was it was a really powerful speech, and he delivered it really well. I mean, that made him a celebrity. Yeah, he had that ability to make you think he was going to fight for big things. And really, I mean, I just remember there was like, there was there was the, the, the campaigning Obama, and then there became President Obama, and I, I felt yeah. they were really two different. Types yeah. of people. Yeah, you know? I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, so unless you have something else to say about that, what what I, my wake up question was really uh, a lead up to um, this question, and I also want to be considerate of I don't you know I don't want to keep you on forever, but I also don't want to stop if it's interesting. So you've got to tell me what what you want to do. So my question about waking up was really a precursor for this question, which is currently. What are your sources of truth? Like for me, it's primarily it's the Young Turks and Jimmy Dore, and now the like economists kind of the people, like real progressives, economists kind. Of. But but generally, it's like the Young Turks and Jimmy Dore, and you know clearly that's internet stuff. I, I wonder if your answer is going to be all internet stuff, which I'm guessing it's going to be. And did you have a source of truth before you woke up? Like, what, does that question even make sense? Like, was there something that you that felt more real to you before the internet age, before you woke up. For me, I didn't. I just, nothing. Until I sort of discovered the Young Turks and the internet, stuff on the internet, I, I really, you know, I was just relying on what everybody else relies on. But I was just talking to Peter Jacob, who was the candidate running north of me, who does understand at least the basics of NMT. And he he saw through the Iraq war in 2003, like with the help of his father and whatever. And I was like, how in the world... Did you do that? Like, what were your sources of truth back then? Like that, because there was nothing. There was just CNN and all that stuff. So my question for you is, what are your sources of truth? And did you have any before the Internet age or before you woke up or whatever? You know, it's interesting. Um, I wasn't at the time listening to a lot of mainstream uh, news because at home, when I came home, I had rabbit ears. And so I wasn't, maybe got some local news but I wasn't going, okay, 6 o'clock, i got to watch, you know, ABC Tonight or whatever, you know, whatever the, the ABC News, whatever they call mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wasn't, um, I wasn't really listening to mainstream news. I was really listening to Air America. Um, okay. And I was getting a very different perspective on the war. And um, that's, that was the reason why. But I, I can't say that it turned me into, like, it really woke me up. It just sort of woke me up on that one topic. It also seemed like, I couldn't see the connection. What, what's this connection between Iraq and what happened with 9-11? Like, no one seemed to be able to put, you know, explain that. So it's almost like, you know, what I see this is happening with this Russia stuff. It's like no one seems to be able to make the real connection. You're like, how, how did Trump collude with them? I, I still don't, I'm not a fan of Trump, but I still can't see this connection. I see a lot of gish gallop of, like, we're just going to throw a bunch of um, unrelated it seems like they're related, but a bunch of, you know, a bunch of people in Trump's administration meeting with Russian people. But it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't show anything. It's just a bunch of them. And, you know, when people are globalists, like people who are extremely wealthy and powerful, they know people all over the world. I think we, do, we, we don't realize how much people know other people in other countries when they're extremely wealthy. I was reading a book called The Plutocrats, and she, the, the author, I can't think of her name, but she said, you know, these people don't even have to have passports. They fly in on their private jets. They come out. Certain people have a certain level of wealth and influence. 
they don't have their passports. They just come in to a country, they meet with the important people, and they leave, you know, or yeah. party or whatever the heck they do. But they, a lot of the times, they are given these certain, you know, international laws just don't apply to them. So I think that was one of the things that has gotten me really, you know, the way I remember learning about the Iraq war is the same thing. I sort of see where I'm questioning the narrative because with, with Russia in the same way, because no one seems to be really making the direct connection. Um, but with, with, with Bernie, it was completely different because I really did believe that the Democrats were better than the Republicans, that they were somehow, they were the good guys. You know, they were fighting even, even at the time when I was Totally disappointed with Obama, and it might be because the Republicans are an absolute death cult. But <laughs> Democrats, the Democrats are, you know, they're they, they, they're a death cult with I, with nice with nice uh, we love black people stickers and gay people stickers. Right, they're 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 kind of like um, they're the enablers of the Republicans, which makes them even worse in a way. Because yeah, that's, they the, never that's the NLK. That's like the MLK thing. Like, uh, I'd rather someone lie to me about how much they hate. No, I'd rather someone be truthful to me, fully truthful, if they hate me, than someone who is, I, I don't exactly know how, the, uh, he, he's, he would rather someone hate him and be truthful about it than someone like him, but be, oh gosh, what's that awesome saying that he has like I know being, what you're talking about. yeah i can't think of i can't think of the right thing but basically if you're going to hate me hate me and be honest and truthful about it and that's sort of like the republicans at least they're, they're honest about it but the democrats right. pretend to like you pretend to like you but actually stab you in the back while you're not looking right and that makes them very hard to fight you know that's the thing i think that's that's part of the reason why if you hate me and you tell me you hate me then i can fight you like but it's very hard it's kind of like it's when you come across that person who um, really believes in, in the Democrats still hasn't, didn't have that moment at all that we did um, and thinks the Democrats are, are the good guys and they're working towards good things for people um, and that they're not bought and anything like that. Anything that you try to say about the Democrats having problems and need to fix, you know, a lot of people just push back. Um, it's kind of like they can't. They, they, they're looking at the smiling face, though. They're not seeing what, what the veil that's been lifted for us to see them for what they really are, which is the biggest enablers of the Republicans, the, the non-opposition party. They will never fight the Republicans in any real way um, that will help the people of the country. And, and if this, you know, as this, if this continues to happen, we're never going to make the kind of changes on, on climate. You can't incremental change your way out of planetary Armageddon at this point. You know, we're not going to incremental our way to, to success. And we're not going to depend. If you're depending on the free market, which is driven by profit, and will only invest in things that will make them money to save the freaking environment, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. That assumes that they're even interested in letting it happen. They will profit off of it, and they will, they will call off right. a lot of their people who are against them. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, like, it's hard to even say that the Democrats, the Democrats are even against, you know, are, are for fighting climate change in any real way. You're right. It's hard to say that, that they even stand for that um, in any real way. But people do think, there's people out there that think those Democrats are going to come around and they're going to fight for, you know, the, the, the sort of, the, 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 the kind of, you know, how everyone was clamped over Trump taking us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Well, it's like, come on, we're not even doing anywhere near what we need to be doing. 
as a right, the Paris, as if the Planned Paris Climate Agreement is even good enough. Right. It, it was nowhere near good enough. It's nowhere near good enough for for you know the kind of massive change that has to happen in us in order for us to even hope to begin to reverse you know the effects of climate change at this point. And so you know, I, it's it's the most it's it's just incredibly frustrating to try to get across to people who I think agree with me. 90% of the time, but just can't see the Democrats for who they really are and the fact that they are culp- so culpable in all of what's happening. It's really it's really the horrible, 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 from the locals all the way to the national level of we just got to stop the Republicans. Vote Democrat because right. they're better than the Republican. They're not as horrendous mm-hmm. as the Republican. We will talk about it after this election. We will talk about what bothers you, you know, what, what, you know, we can't push the Democrats who'd be better because that might sabotage right. his chances because he's only going to win by the thinnest of margins anyway. So we can't sabotage his chances because we have to stop this monster. We'll talk after the election's over. And that is the perpetual delay, 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 delay. Yep. And even the people do it. Even the people, the local people do that. It's not the Democrat. I mean, it's not just the party apparatus itself it's the people have been convinced of this and that yeah. i i've written some some pretty harsh stuff that i've never published because because in one in particular case because people that i care about are just like you will hurt this person's chances don't do it just don't do it mm-hmm. and and it's like oh when, yeah, I think I think I'm done. I think I'm done that. Like I was sort of done that after with Bernie Sanders and Hillary. You have to vote for Hillary, or you cause Trump kind of stuff. But right. I think I think I think I'm finally like, you know what? I like you, but I don't like you this much. I, I, I'm not doing that anymore. I would rather lose your your friendship than than compromise myself in this way anymore because it's destroying our, it's destroying us. Right. No. I mean, I I I, I used to think the same way. You have. To. You have to vote for the lesser of two evils. I bought into that completely. And then when I realized this is what's going to keep happening, we're never going to get anybody, because Obama felt like we weren't voting for the lesser of two evils. I felt like I was voting for something that was going to do something. And when, yeah. I, when it came down to it, he never did. So, I mean, yeah. I think that was the biggest thing about Obama and why Obama did actually play a pretty big role in giving us Trump as well is because he did he created such high hope and it ended up being creating such a, you know, we ended up with such despair after that because Obama can't do it. We put all of our hopes in him. And, you know, not only did he bail out the banks and all this stuff that, you know, most of the recovery went to the top, you know, like 1% or 5% of the population. It didn't really, the rest of us weren't feeling a lot of the recovery and all this stuff. And it's all had to do with how, how that was all handled. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we went in, now we're in more wars. He was supposed to end the wars. Yeah. So, I mean, if he wasn't going to do it, then... You know, you know Hillary Clinton wasn't going to, and Hillary Clinton was going to be more of what was frustrating. So you could see why people went I'm not voting for her. She's mm-hmm. she she she's and, and on top of it, they were trying to tell us a story with. I mean, I remember when somebody said um, that the theme of the Democratic National Convention was America is already great. Ugh. And I thought, well, I can't even watch any of this because that is that is that is so tone deaf. That is so clueless. That is, you couldn't come up with a more bubble, um, you know, bubble thinking. Uh, I was idea. there. 
I was there. I was a Bernie delegate. I was a Bernie delegate. Oh, wow. That's awesome. We we suffered. (laughs) It was not fun. It was not a fun experience. It was a job. It was a job. Wow. And and actually, I... I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, yeah. We were treated like the children. We were treated like petulant children. Really, like, really. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm very good at disagreeing without being a jerk. Like a lot, that's sort of like a, a dying art, I think. Like I have friends who are Trump supporters and they, I've actually gotten some contributions from Trump supporters and they know totally, totally know who I am. And I, they keep asking me to come back and like cover their stuff. And it's like one of the things I'm like most proud of in life. And, and I started live streaming with Citizens Media TV started because of the DNC. And I started live streaming. Like I was like, how am I going to survive this? I'm just going to be treated like, shit all week long how am i going to survive this and i decided i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to live stream facebook live started really taking off around that time and i live streamed an average eight hours a day i wrote a 50 article series on all my coverage i wrote this huge series of of all everything that i experienced and it was i don't want to say it was incredible but it was like a really meaningful experience like that was my way of making something out of it you know um yeah but no we it was it was a harsh experience. It was a really rough experience. Yeah, I'm sure. I can't even imagine. Like, I, I, I didn't even tune in. I, I couldn't. I couldn't even stomach it because I was just like, this is going to be phony baloney garbage, and it's going to be um, this. You know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stomach seeing people praising Hillary Clinton after I knew, you know, I knew dirty tricks were going on behind the scenes. And no one had to prove it to me at that point. I didn't have to have Ed Schultz say I was told I couldn't cover Bernie. I didn't have to have, um, and as many Bernie supporters, I think, you know, I didn't need to know that, you know, 200,000 people were purged from the roles, uh, the voting roles in Brooklyn. You know, we didn't learn that until way after that, all that happened. We all knew there was something. I couldn't, I couldn't say all the things that were happening. I couldn't point to them directly, but I knew that, you know, how she got there and how she ended up winning was, with some really dirty tricks. That well, this on. is this is exactly why Russia is nothing, right? Because the movement is gaining more power, and so yeah. therefore they have to find that this is you know it's it, it's one thing to blame it on Hillary lost because of Russia. That's not why it's happening. It's happening in preparation to label everybody who supports Bernie and next starting next year. Yes. Yes, to say we're we're all Russian trolls. We're all you know we're communists. We're even though yep. they're not communists anymore, it's not even a thing. You know, like it's not you know. Uh, it is it is giving per, it is giving permission to people to persecute people who su- support Bernie Sanders and that kind of yep. policy. That's exactly what it is. It is giving permission to persecute those who are against the wishes of the powerful. Um, right. So. All right. Well, let me let me go back. So, so the question was, what are your sources of truth? You sort of answered that for like before. Oh, my so, okay. so currently, what are your sources of truth? Um, let's see here. Well, I, I listen to a lot of the same groups you do. Um, I remember getting really into what. Um, so Jimmy Dore. I remember listening a lot to um, Jordan Sheridan. But you know who made a really big difference for me probably was um, Katie Halper. Oh. She was, um, she actually was the one that 
going to be on to, to, to Thomas Wright because she did a live stream with him. And I don't think he got a lot of views, unfortunately, because it was a Facebook one. And I don't think Facebook, you know, it's hard sometimes with Facebook. I think if you're doing something more progressive sometimes, I think it can be hard to get a lot of, of views on Facebook because of everybody's, you know, like Twitter kind of has like lefty Twitter. There's not like lefty Facebook and stuff. But um, anyways, she was she was interviewing Thomas Frank, and that's what I, I remember listening to the interview and going, I'm buying that book. And I bought hmm. the book because the one thing that was going on that particularly was with the Bernie Bros and how I was sitting here going, well, I know I'm a female, and I know I support You're sure. Standards. You're sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm almost positive that I'm <laughs> female, and I support learning standards, and I knew friends of mine who were female who did, too. And I knew a lot of the guy friends I knew who, Bernie, who supported Bernie Sanders were not, you know, sexist and misogynist. You know, <laughs> I knew this was a total thing that was being made up um, by the... That was a pre-Russia Russia. Yes, yes, that was the pre-Russia Russia. Yeah, it was it was uh, the Bernie Bros, Bernie Bros, Texas Bernie Bros, misogynistic Bernie Bros. And the reason why I found Katie Hopper really um, comforting was that she was a female who was talking about being labeled this Bernie Bro, and you know, essentially erasing the women who were supporting Bernie, um, acting like we weren't there where we were, and sort of she was giving these you know talking making these arguments that I didn't, I wasn't hearing anybody else making because I was largely on Facebook. You know, I wasn't on Twitter at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't listening to people like Jimmy Dore or even like I, w- I had listened to the Young Turks here and there, but I wasn't really into the YouTube thing at that time. And because like I said, I mean, I was really only beginning to piece things together in the bigger woke way when I was, when I, when I started noticing how the media was treating Bernie. Mm-hmm. And, and so Katie Hopper was one of the first people I came across. I just It was another thing where she kind of popped up on my Facebook feed, probably because somebody I know who I know liked one of her videos or commented on one of her videos. And so she ended up on my Facebook feed. And that, she was one of the people that I was like, oh, wow. There are, you know, first off, there's, there's people that are feeling the same way, women that are feeling the same way I'm feeling. And, boy, this woman's super smart. She's a really smart person. So I started really listening to her, and then I – started listening to her podcast um, and then also became a Patreon and everything like that. And then, you know, and then I, you know, and now I listen to like Chocolate Trap House and all those guys, but a lot of different voices on, on YouTube at Kyle Kalinske. I like secular talk. I like humanist report. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, I mean, there's, there's I, I go to a lot of those people. Lee Camp, I like Redacted Tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think I guess I got have a lot of different sources of truth, and a lot of them came from online. But I mean, essentially, alternative media, and and a lot all, of alternative media yeah. is online. Yeah, well, it's all it's all internet. Hence net neutrality. Hence, uh, if you know this post-Sesta horrible vote that Bernie actually voted for, which is supposedly for stopping sex trafficking, but it actually right. is really um, internet censorship. And, I'm sorry. It's, I know it's really going to hurt sex workers and stuff like that. There's a collateral damage. They're, they're, they're going to be hurt by conceptual sex workers are going to be hurt as collateral damage. They're just, you know, who, who cares about them, right? But it's, uh, no, it's, it's actually hiding Internet censorship. In, it's it's oh, the Internet right. censorship in disguise. So it's, the concept right. is if a website has anything related to uh, sex trafficking, 
the whole website can be shut down. So what a convenient way for a nefarious actor to just put something on the website that they want to shut down. Right. Right. And Bernie voted for this. Who in the world knows why? So, um, I lost track. But how much of the, how much of these, I was going to ask, what I asked other people is, what is your criticism of these sources of truth if you have any? And obviously for, I think the obvious thing is MMT. I'm sure that you hear plenty of stuff with all of these people that you mentioned of errors of MMT. In fact, I don't know of any really that, that say it right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, sometimes I think it's it's such an incredibly, I mean, even though the concept is, you know, as Stephanie Kelvin says, we we, we did at one point understand this. You know, um, we wouldn't have have been able to do World War II if we didn't understand this. Um, So there was a time when we did understand this. But I think there's always a problem in explaining it. And I, I also think... You know, MMT goes deep, right? You can get into some really, really um, uh, complicated ideas, right? Um, once you start, I mean, the basics of it are pretty. I think you can, you think you can explain that to most people. And, but I think then people are afraid to when they get into something further. Like how do I? Oh, did I just get myself, talk myself into a situation where I don't know how that works? You know, I don't know exactly how the Fed does this, or I don't know exactly what the relationship is between, you know, the Treasury and private banks and selling bonds and the Fed buying those bonds. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of the um, more intricate stuff. And so sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure that they that it they don't understand MMT or they You start to hear there's people saying the one thing that you're starting to hear is we have the money, we can always like people are saying we can print the money. You know, they're starting to talk about that. Like, we can always, we can always create the money. That's never the problem. Mm. But they're not going any further than that. They're not going into the whole idea of, they they can't, I don't think the idea of like being able to say that taxes don't fund spending is, they know that that concept to people is so absolutely for them out of this world that it's, that at the federal level, taxes are not necessary for spending. That we don't, we don't, we, that they don't fund us. That our federal government actually, that we don't fund it, that the federal government actually funds us is such a, a bizarre concept for people. Hmm. That I think it's, it's heavy for these, these, these political commentators who are used to thinking outside of the box in other ways. But I think it's a little bit scarier with this because even though the idea has been around a long time, Today, to plunk it into today's world and how we understand things, it's like, could I lose all of my, um, if I, if I really start talking about this in a very real way, and this is just beyond even just interviewing an MNT economist, but really talking about how MNT works and what it means, um, would I lose my credibility and would I be always able to answer every question that somebody has? So if I get my credibility, if I become credible, well, I lose my credibility. Right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think I think they need to adopt it, become credible. They need to to understand it, begin to understand it. Um, but there, I think there's always a, a fear that there's going to be somebody out there that knows a bit more about the, some sort of mechanisms of the monetary system that they won't be able to answer or know. And here they are pushing oh, a mean, big new idea, and they can't answer that question. Yeah, I mean, how? I mean, you you don't become that's that's. 
I totally agree with you. And but from their point of view, it's like it's so it's just weird. It's like if I can't understand everything, I'm not going to try and understand anything. It's like there's there's two. I, I I would think that you would agree with this, but there's two levels of learning MMT. One is just the initial mind bender of money is infinite. No, we shouldn't print money infinitely, but it is infinite by definition. Yeah. And therefore, that logically extends to they don't need income, and that which extends to taxes don't pay for anything at the federal level, which extends to the deficit and debt and all those myths. So that's the first mind bender, and then it goes way deep on whole tons of stuff like the, the specific mechanics of you know Federal Reserve and the Treasury and all that stuff, which I don't totally get yet. Banks lending money, which I'm only starting to only starting to understand that. I'm barely just starting to get into that. You know, there's so many details. And the federal job guarantee. I, I, um, what do you call it? Crammed. Like I have never crammed since college. <laughs> I had, I had a radio interview a couple of weeks ago because I wrote that, that article, my, my federal job guarantee UBI article, like comparing the two. I don't know if you saw that. I wrote an article about the federal job guarantee and UBI. And it was all, it was all instinct. It was all just instinct. I mean, I read a little bit, but most of it was just instinct. Like, it just feels sort of, like, obvious and natural that giving people money is not a good thing. It's, there's no, you know, giving people a job and then then money because of it, that's a good thing. And so I wrote this article about it, and then this radio host saw it and wrote me and said, could you do an interview? And I was like, fuck. Sure. And they were like, I gotta really know this job because it's a federal job guarantee. And and then it got deeper and deeper and deeper. It is a deep subject. It's a deep mm-hmm. subject. And and I really, it really, I was really nervous that I was not going to be prepared for it. And I had seven did you, pages. Go ahead. Did you go any chance to see the Real Progressive video with uh, Pavlina Chernova recently? That was part of my studying. <laughs> was that? Yeah. Because I thought I thought I thought that was a great that was a great interview with her. It was really covered a lot of the really the things that people really need to understand, but also got into some of the, the, the deeper ideas. Yeah, actually I got, I, I mean, she has, you know, her whole recent study, I think from February of this year, which I did not be, but, but she put out a sack an FAQ about, mm-hmm. which I think is part of her study, which I think is like in the, in the second half of her study, which I read the whole thing of that. And then that inspired me to watch the video, which really filled in a lot of the gaps and whatever. Um, that was a major thing. Her her FAQ was was a big big help. It is such a deep subject. I couldn't believe it. It just kept on going and going and going. <laughs> it it was it's it's like I can't I can't do this. I mean, it ended up going fine. I had seven pages of notes taped with pizza boxes. I was sitting in my car. You were probably beyond prepared for what she was ready to ask you. Huh? I had a, it, it ended up being fine. It was actually a really it was it ended up being good. It ended up being good. I was overprepared, but I had to be. I had to. I couldn't go in with just a very, you know, narrow whatever. Right. I had that. So I was literally sitting in my car with with seven pieces of paper on two pizza boxes in front of me in the <laughs> steering wheel, sitting in the lot of of a of my school of the school where I was substitute teaching, and uh, it was it was really stressful, but it turned out turned out to be good. But what was I saying that for? Oh, so so it's like there's two levels of learning MMT. One is just the original mind, but it's the it's the, the that really important mind bender of yeah, getting the mind- basics, getting the sort of basics, you know, the, the the big the big I would say the high level concept. Right. Of, yeah. And if but, you can get past then, that, then then 
all, you know, then everything, the, the world, what do you call it? The, the world is their oyster or whatever. It's like, you know, the can of worms is open and just take your time. It's, there's no rush after that. Exactly. That's what I think. See, that's why I wanted to sort of, because I feel like if you can get that high, those high-level understandings, which I sort of broke down into five points, um, if you can get those and make the connection, sort of the sort of circular connection, then then what you can do is that's kind of the Rosetta Stone to beginning to understand what the heck these people are talking about when you go and you just click on a video with Warren Mosler or Randall Ray, and they're talking about, you know, you can and you can start to Google, you know, term. I've Googled so much, you know, uh, financial and economic terminology. I've never ever in my life looked looked up stuff this much. Hmm. But if you can have that, that kind of, then you can really start to begin to understand where they're coming from. Like I remember Stephanie Kelton having, she put out this tweet that said, um, it was all about Trump's tariffs, and she said, you know. Something about Trump not understanding that exports are a cost and imports are an asset or a benefit. Hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, like, and I think most people would go, well, that's crazy. Of course, exports are a good thing and, and, and you know, selling exports is a good thing and um, imports, importing things is bad. And but then my, my MMT brain was like, no, imports would be good because you're getting the real resources of another country, and all you're mm. doing is giving money for it. You know, That's somebody on on the, on the MMT page said, in, in explaining this, he, he was the intro to MMT. There's a, a Facebook page called Intro to MMT, and um, you, there's there's some really there's a real lot of opportunities to get into the weeds there. But he's one of the guys that's in the intro group, and he's really knowledgeable, and he's but he's very good at explaining things. And when he was okay. explaining imports versus exports from an MMT perspective, he said to this person, he said, "You give me a sandwich, and I give you a promise." Because the money is a promise, and the sandwich is something you can actually sustain yourself on, right? Mm. Um, and so the import is really a benefit, but it's really funny because when she tweeted that, I immediately got what she was talking about. It didn't mm. seem weird to me at all. It was like, yeah, of course, that's, that's, they're, they're giving you the real resources of their country. They're cool. losing. They're really, you know, they're, they're the ones that are out because when you realize that the constraint on spending is real resources, that's where the... That's where you have to understand where the real wealth is. So you said you said you had five points or something like that. What are those five? Yeah, the first the first point is explaining currency user versus currency issuer. The yeah. second is um, the dollar is a tax credit. The third is the government. The federal government funds us. We don't fund it. And the fourth point is um, the deficit is a surplus. And the um, national debt is a savings account. And then, so that's like where the bonds are held. Like the war bonds are part of the debt. Yeah, yeah. Like people, when people, whenever we 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 um, we run a deficit, we um, as they like to say, we fund it with bonds. And so people go out and purchase those bonds. But those bonds are people's savings instruments, right? I mean, I know growing up, my grandparents gave me treasury bonds, gave me and my mm-hmm. brother and sister on holidays and birthdays. So essentially, we owned part of the national debt, a very, very teeny, 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 tiny amount, but we mm-hmm. owned part of the national debt because, but, but to us, that was our savings. Right. So is it, nobody is, sees the two sides of the balance sheet. They see only the one side of the balance sheet. They see the debt. And, and that debt is the currency issuer's debt. And currency issuers 
yes, it's a debt, but do they ever really have debt if they can issue the currency? <laughs> Would anybody who can counterfeit money ever have debt if we all believed what they were counterfeiting was the U.S. Right. currency? It's, it's only financial debt. That's interesting. It's only financial debt, and finance, finances or whatever, currency, it's a currency debt, a finance debt, whatever you say. Yeah, it's a currency And, and finance is infinite. It's not a real resources debt. It's not a real resources debt. It's just a money debt, and money, by definition, is infinite. So debt is nothing. To a currency issuer, no. It's it, it's not a big deal to a currency issuer. They can, they will always be able to cover whatever debt, whatever sort of whatever you want to consider the debt. But we we the bonds get sold because it was a, you know, it was something that was done from the get go from our from the beginning of our country, and it was a holdover from like pretty much the gold standard of having to have something, so much of something on hand to back what was in the money supply. Right. Let me ask you a question. So it, it, are, uh, are, are bonds, like a 10-year bond or whatever, you have to wait 10 years for that. Is that, isn't that correct? Like you can't cash um, it in early. Some, some bonds are earlier, some are not. You actually can. Um, I, know, I, know I, could, I know I was able to. Mine were seven-year treasury bonds. And I was able to cash mine in early. I, so I not get interest, I can I guess. tell you, this is one of those things where it's just like, you get a question, you're like, well, I don't know everything there is to know about bonds, but I do know you can you can cash, some you can cash in earlier, yeah. Without um, the interest, obviously people, without the interest. I would think that logically you, you would not get that interest. I would give you the money back, but not the interest. And certainly the penalty. You, would get, you get the amount of interest for the years that it accumulated interest. So I would oh. get five years of interest. So yeah. you get X percent of like if it's ten percent over ten years and you cash it out at three years, you get three percent. Whatever, whatever. So yeah. you get three years worth of. If it was a three percent, you get three years of that of, the, of I got whatever. It. Yeah, okay. I of got that it. percentage over three years. But um, and I can't remember though if, if if there is a penalty that I had to pay if they took out I something would, in penalty. I can't remember, but I it would may, guess may no. have been, it may not have been. Yeah, I would guess I no. But so. but I mean, but I think the horror story is. Uh, the horror story is, is, well, what if everybody just cashes their bonds in all at once? And it's like, okay, so we cash in, tw- so people ask for $20 trillion in, in whatever, in bonds or money, and people in China has $10 trillion, we have whatever. It's like, so what? What are they going to do with that money? They'll buy stuff. And so yeah. maybe that'll cause potential inflation, and we have millions of tools to handle that, to handle that problem. So it's yeah, I mean, if I'm understanding that correctly, it's it's not a big deal even if everybody cashed it in all at once. No, it shouldn't be a big deal if everyone cashed it in all at once because I mean, a will everybody spend it? We don't know. Will people just save it and just put it in their you know a savings account or a money market account or something like that, or somebody put it in a different type of investment? Will they? Um, but even if they did, it's not a problem because we have a million tools to be able to handle inflation, right? Yeah, our big thing is we can tax it away. We can just raise taxes to sort of begin to pull a lot of that money out of the out of the money supply, so that it, it you know it's taxed out of existence. Um, states could, at this point, geez, I mean, states would probably love to be able to tax people more. I mean, if we if, if we got into an, in a situation where there was a fear that everybody was going to start spending money, like all of a sudden everybody cashed in their bonds, chances are, if we ever get rid of the national debt. If we ever do get rid of it, the only way it's ever going to really happen, because Trump has said, "Oh, we're going to get rid of, the, I'm going to get rid of the national debt." Well, the, the the likely way we'll ever do it is that we'll stop issuing bonds because there's really no need 
for the federal government to do that. It's a holdover from the gold standard. It's not necessary. Most of the people that have their money plunked into treasuries, I mean, yes, a lot of people who have retirement accounts have treasuries because you got to diversify, but the great majority of them are people who tend to have a lot of money. They're wealthy yeah. people, and they're just making it sort of like welfare for rich people because yeah. it's an investment that will not go bad. If and they can afford to have – they can afford – they can afford to have some liquidity sitting and and four percent with a lot of money on a lot of different bonds or whatever, ten percent over ten years, that's like a, a real strategy of really breaking in the dough over time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If it's at if it's at like three percent, I mean, you're 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 gonna make money. And if you and the more you can put in there, right, the more you make. So I mean for rich people it's 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 just it's almost like and some people have described it as welfare payments for wealthy people. Hmm. You know, they don't have to work. They just take all the money they already have, and they'll always be. It would always be made good because they're, they're, you know, they're buying the debt of the currency issuer. Right. They're always going to be able to pay them. Right. Right. I came up with my own analogy about the debt and the deficit and all these myths and stuff, and you know, balance mm-hmm. budget and all that. And that is, it's like there's, a, it's like your family. Everyone has a bank account. Children have a bank account. Each of, each of the children have a bank account. The parents have a bank account. And when you talk about the debt and the deficit and the, and the balance budget and surplus and all that, it's as if you only care about the parents. You don't care about the children. You don't care about the whole fam- the family as a whole. And the federal government, the debt and the deficit and the balance budget and all that stuff, we're only talking about the, ba- the, the parent, the federal government's bank account and ignoring all of the 350 million children and all ignoring the country as a whole. So when we say we need a balanced budget, we're saying we only care about the parents and we don't care about the welfare of, we're not even considering the welfare of the children or the country as a whole. And as we know, like when the government deficit spends, that means there's more money being spent in um, to the economy than it's being taken out. And therefore, that's a net savings for us currency users, the, the children in your metaphor. You know, that's a net, that's a net savings for us. That is money we don't, none of us have to go into debt to get a hold of. You know, um, that's, that's a very different, cause as, you know, you're probably, I don't know if you said you're learning about credit and stuff like that, how that works. Money created in the banking system. Oh, bank. Yeah, I, I'm not that familiar with the, the banking system yet. Correct. Yeah, and and the, the thing about the great thing about currency is nobody has to essentially, you know, money is created by banks, you know, um, and it's that's through the permission of the federal government that they're able to do that, and they create it by creating loans. Well, if they're making money by creating loans because a loan creates a deposit, then Yes, somebody's getting to say, I buy your house for $100,000, okay, and say you own it outright. And so I have to take out a loan for, I'll just say I don't have a down payment, so I have to take out a loan for $100,000. So you're going to end up with $100,000 in your in your bank account under the deposit, and I'm going to end up with debt, which means somebody, in order for you to get that money, somebody else has to go into debt. So it nets to zero. It doesn't, it doesn't create any money that... Isn't I mean the only way we 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 create money through the banking system is somebody has to go into debt in order to do it. Whereas when the when when the government spends money, 
yes, we think the government's going into debt, but it's really not, um, not in a real sense. Um, but that money's coming out to us, and none of us have to go into debt to get that money. That's a net savings for all of us. In your analogy, you're talking about when I get a $100,000 loan that I go into debt for $100,000. Right. And you have to pay that back. You have to pay that back over time so that you are going to be out $100,000 over time plus interest, right? And the bank will get the interest and you will pay the interest and that will net to zero because you have to pay that interest that the bank makes. And and the $100,000 that the person who you bought the house from you know, they get the they get the liquidity and they get the spending power, right? They get the ability to spend that, but not without you going into debt. Somebody, another currency user has to go into debt in order for that other currency user to end up with $100,000 netted in their deposits in the bank account. So that's the difference between the government and the federal government. Nobody has to go into debt when the government spends. No currency user has to go into debt when the government, when the government deficit spends. So that's a net gain for us. Oh, uh it's hard for me to understand how the banks can do this. It's like they just have like infinite power to enslave people. I mean, that's what it seems like. That they can just create money and now this obligation on someone for a $100,000 loan, they have to pay it back plus interest. And mm-hmm. it just seems like infinite power for the banks. Like it seems sinister. I can't, I can't, it's hard for me to see this as sort of a, a positive thing. I think that's the reason why a lot of people see throughout history banking as a sort of sinister thing. Um, though it does allow for our economy to, to really function, um, is, is creating, creating loans. But you know, the thing is, is we've, we've, what we've done, particularly with, you know, making things about the government can't pay for this and the government can't create things for the public purpose that will bring down our cost of living, right? You know, when, when the government was spending more out into the economy or and, and investing in the public pur- purpose after World War II, you know, the cost of living was much lower for people, not just inflation-wise. It was just people did not have to spend as much as, you know, as we do today. More and more of the responsibility in the economy is on us to keep it afloat, and that's why we end up going into debt a lot more. And because, so, you know, because the responsibility has been forced upon us because the government doesn't work for the public good. I think that's what you're saying. Right, yeah, because, you know, we should have a Medicare for all system. How much money, how much spending would we have to do less of out of our own pocket? The government was the one that was providing, you know, single-payer health care to us. You know, that would be a lot less spending for us. But because we have to pay for this and we have to pay for that, and so much of it falls on, you know, the consumer today, and the government isn't creating the sort of investment that actually takes some of those costs, those, those heavy costs off of us, then, then we're, we're forced to have to spend more. And then when the government says, we need to cut spending at the federal level, mm-hmm. that means less money coming out to us additionally and also causes us to then have to rely on credit and debt. So, Well, let me ask you with the bank thing. Is, is it... Just is it is it a just thing? Is there something that should be different about it? Because it's it, again, it's just they just have the right to put someone in incredible debt and to confiscate their home if they don't pay it back, and it's just created out of nothing. I mean, that seems like a really infinite power. Well, <laughs> um, thing is, is I see banks aren't bad if they're regulated. 
Uh, I don't know if banks are necessarily a bad thing if they're regulated. Um, now that, you know, I could, I could imagine a different system. Like I could imagine a system where everybody sort of had all their basic needs provided for them. And none of it, you know, like you'd have a house, you'd have these things that you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, renting from people and stuff like that. But, um, as, you know, the current system we live in, I think when the banks trap people, when people, when they seduce them into loans that they can't realistically pay for, they can't, you know, you know, like what they began to do when during, you know, the, the late 90s and then throughout the early 2000s, um, with what, what inevitably led to the, the financial crash, which was a lot of it was, you know, the mortgage-backed securities, like offering people loans to people who who should never have been given home loans because mm-hmm. it really and variable not loans, the, variable rate loans too, and the variable rate rate loans that you know after you know five or seven years, their their you know their interest rate went through the roof. Um, that was all. It, it, that was what they were doing was so diabolical. I mean, have you ever seen The Big Short where they talk about? Oh you know, wow. Holy cow, yeah. this is a big short. That's such a great, it's such a great movie. And then, like, going back and particularly learning MMP, I understand a lot of that, all that stuff a lot better oh. than I did at the time that I first saw it. Um, mm. I mean, I could get the idea of what they were doing with the loans, but um, kind of understanding, having a better, a little bit better understanding of how the banking system works. Um, hmm. because the whole thing was like, how did they just have this money to just constantly give people loans and they could just fund people and fund people and fund people? That just seems insane to me. Now I kind of understand that a, a bit better, but, um, the, uh, the, when they say in the beginning, you know, back in the seventies, sixties and seventies, banking was boring. And then all of a sudden when it started getting deregulated and deregulated and then it became, you know, fun. Yeah. It's, 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 I, don't, I mean, obviously, it needs to be boring again. Maybe yeah, no, not too boring. So it's it's the regulation. Number one is is they just have too much power, and they can use the money that should be in savings and not gambled, and they have to, they can chop things up and chop things up again and chop things up again, which lose help, which makes it impossible to know where things came from, and you know. So you kind of have to wonder about what happened because when Clinton. Um, at the very beginning of his presidency, from what I understand, I've heard the story a few times, so I'm guessing it, there's, there's truth to it, um, that uh, I've heard in a couple of different places that what, he had these ideas. He was going to do some things for, for, for the public good. He did have some ideas that he campaigned on. Now, whether or not he was ever planning to, to make good on them, but I know, like, on the eve of his, you know, first days in office, um, Robert Rubin, who became the Secretary of the Treasury, or who was at the time, I think, was already, you know, he already nominated him for it. Um, and Alan Greenspan um, came to him and said, you know, you can't do these because the deficit is way too high, spending's out of control, we have to reduce the deficit, we have to reduce the, the, the debt and all of this. I often wonder, because Robert Rubin went on to run Citigroup in that, that he, he was, I think he had always been a banker. And um, they already knew that this was what was needed to do to make people more dependent on credit. You know, that this was the way to start to get people what, more into What was that way? What I missed what specifically was that way to make people more dependent? 
was to de- decrease government spending. That they had to, they had to heed the shrink oh. the budget. He had to shrink, you know, the deficit. He had to, you know, he had to, you know, and inevitably by the end of his uh, by the end of his presidency, he was running a surplus. Now that was oh, with yeah. the help of the oh. that was with the help of the Republican Congress, of course, once they took over in '94. But it was still, you know, he they put him on that path, and I can't help but think. Was this part of the whole thing? We are, we'll, we'll de- we're going to deregulate more and we're going to starve the people of money and this will help grow the financial sector even more. Like I always wonder, like, was, did they really believe that this is how you make the economy better or was there something more, this is how you have a robust economy or was there something a little more nefarious about doing the bidding of the financial sector? Yeah, interesting. And, and the, the, this, um, that the board, Promesa board in Puerto Rico, is that they're, they took over, they're basically, they've taken over the government. Oh, right, right. And, yeah. and, uh, they, one of the conditions of giving the government back their power is four years of balanced budgets. So four years of. They're doing, they're doing exactly what they're doing to the Greece. Four years of austerity, and then we'll give you your government back. Make the people suffer right. for four years straight, and then we'll give you your government back. And, there was something else I forgot. Um, oh, oh. And, this is a, and the thing is, they're never going to be able to do it. They're not going to be able to do it. Of course. And if they do do it, then everybody suffers even. So they're going to... Right. You're suffering, but suffer 12 times more and we'll give you your government back. Or make the people powerless people so. Um, FDR, but just a quick... it's not going to reduce their debt. No. Yeah. And who cares about reducing the debt? I mean, that's like... Anyway. Um, I mean, we and, could, and we, could, we could fix Puerto Rico tomorrow. We could of course, of course, and it would yeah. cost nothing. But but then the the wealthy couldn't rape the the land. And they couldn't so, have their disaster capitalism that they love so much. Yeah, free electricity. So let's go down and do a cryptocurrency, which by definition requires ever increasing electricity. Right. And you know, um, uh, FDR. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was studying for when I was studying about Puerto Rico, FDR is like you know one of the biggest progressive figures. In history, mm-hmm. but a huge blemish on his on his legacy is he was a major figure in colonializing Puerto Rico. I don't exactly know the details, but I remember listening. It was on the uh, Congressional Dish podcast, her first Puerto Rico thing. She's a really good podcast, except she doesn't know MMP, <laughs> and she, she did not react well when I wrote her. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but she, she, she's, it's a really well done podcast given that, given that caveat. And she did one on Puerto Rico and, and, uh, there was this thing about FDR about he, but he was an instrumental figure in colonializing Puerto Rico. And I was like, wow. Oh, I thought it was, I thought it was Teddy Roosevelt. That was, is that Oh, was oh maybe. Oh, I hope that's true. I, I, yeah. I thought it was FDR. Okay. Because it was during, you know, uh, Puerto Rico was, uh, we ended up gaining Puerto Rico after the Spanish-American War, which was the, the war that Teddy Roosevelt actually fought in as one of the Rough Riders. And so that was, I think that was more his era. And he was a, he was a, he was, he was pro-imperialism. He was pro-American imperialism. Uh, what, around what years was that, approximately? That was, well, um, the Spanish-American War only took a couple of months. Um, so it was like 1898. Is, I think, oh, this was—I I remember this was something like 1912, but but 
anyway, I mean, it is what it is, but... Well, I mean, it may have been that we gained it, but maybe some of the stuff that we did to Puerto Rico happened. I mean, under... um, He became president after McKinley was shot because he was his vice president. So that was Hmm. maybe 1901, Hmm. I'm thinking, or maybe it was a little bit later, a little bit earlier. Maybe it was him. Maybe it was him then. Interesting. I think it was... I think it it was... Teddy, but you know there are some blemishes, without a doubt, on FDR's on FDR's legacy as well, like Japanese internment, and mm. um, and also you know some of the deals that he had to make with the like the a lot of the New Deal stuff was not was not available to African Americans until after the Civil Rights Movement, because the one of the deals that he had to make in order to get the votes of the Southern Democrats was to exclude African Americans from wow. you know, a lot of those a lot That's of those And I would imagine that Medicaid Medicare only being for sixty five and up, I presume that, that probably was part of the deal too. Well that only came in under Johnson. So that came oh. well, there you go. Okay. under the yeah, so they did, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they well, so. <laughs> was open. <laughs> was open to everyone. Um yeah, every, everyone who was sixty five and older, regardless of race. Um, or creed or whatever. Um, but yeah, that was the politics of the time because at the time there was still a lot of Southern Democrats. Um, now we know that. Um, oh, yeah. Who am I talking to? A college, a, a graduate student of history. Okay. Yeah, but I can't even remember the year that Teddy Roosevelt became president. I'm like, ah, I used to know this, but I know it's somewhere around the turn of the century that he became president. And so, uh, yeah, the, 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 um, the colonization or the, the takeover of Puerto Rico, we, that was part of, you know, I guess our, you know, the negotiations of, of the peace for the Spanish-American War is that we got, we also got the Philippines, and that's an even really uglier story of what happened in the Philippines, very, very bloody war hmm. that occurred there hmm. in order to, because we, 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 we got it from the Spanish, but the, Philippi- the Filipinos wanted independence. And we were like, uh-uh. you know, we were anti-colonial until we got some colonies and then we wanted to control them, you know. Mm-hmm. We were very hypocritical, surprise, surprise. Yeah, Puerto Rico is a horrible situation, such a horrible situation. I visited really? for I visited for three days. Um, I, and uh, just like, it was like, it was November or something, so it was a good, I don't know, six months afterwards. And it's like, I was driving, we were driving down streets and all these poles were diagonal and the wires were all over the ground. It's like, what? It's like... Couldn't you, I mean, Puerto Rico could be this great, you know, instead of like this disaster capitalism thing that's going on there, we could do all these things, like start doing infrastructure projects there and doing some innovative stuff in Puerto Rico, you know, because we, you know, every, you know, all the, um, all, the, all of our politicians like to see, like, they want to they want to try out something somewhere, you know. I mean, why not try out, you know, all these types of, you know, particularly infrastructure, new new buildings, you know, new innovations in infrastructure and stuff, particularly getting rid of all of the, all of the you know, telephone poles and putting everything underground, hmm. you know, which, which they've done in, I know they did this in the Netherlands, um, getting rid of that and starting to put everything underground, um, try, hmm. giving them improved, broadband, doing all these things that would, you know, be a wonderful thing for Puerto Rico, but instead, you know, we're punishing them for, 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 for an act of nature, 
<laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, and it's, it's and really we're punishing them mainly because they're 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 they have, they're brown. The majority of the population is brown. Well, I feel like I honestly you know? feel like almost the whole world is turning into like that kind of situation. I mean, particularly the United States right now, but because of this global economy, it's like almost the entire world is turning into this colony kind of a thing. That the pressure is just so, just is so increasing in every facet of life. It's like something has got to give somewhere. And net neutrality is, is, you know, the race is on for 2020 with net neutrality and all this. It's like, the, you know, it's... Right. Something has got to get somewhere. Something big is going to happen sometime reasonably soon. I mean, yeah, like, I, I can't imagine... disastrous, like a, a, another collapse of the economy or something. I honestly feel like I can't imagine what's going to happen. I can't imagine a scenario that doesn't somehow involve, like, a billion people dying. I mean, what right. what other alternatives are there? At this point, I mean, global right. warming, let, let alone global warming, instead of even set aside global warming, it's just like they're putting the screws on so hard in so many ways, aside from global warming, that it's just like, you know, this can't continue. It just can't continue like this. I mean, it's no. really, it's been desperate for a while now. And, and I don't think people understood that until now. But it is, it's, and it's just, it, it's getting worse at high speed high speed and the, right. the Supreme Court right. is making it worse now and that's that's a long term thing, you know. Even if we yeah, solve I a political problem, the Supreme Court is not going to be solved for a while. I don't know what's gonna to have to happen. You know, because obviously we're having we're seeing a lot of the effects of global warming in our in, in a lot of things that are happening, you know, with uh drought and fires and uh hurricanes and, you know, the fierceness of tornadoes, all these things are starting to, to happen more and more. Um, and a lot of the time it seems to be, you know, either it's got to be some sort of like, you know, like world wars created, you know, massive sea changes um, and big economic crashes can create economic sea changes. I mean, um, big uh, worldwide sea changes. So we'll, we'll have to see. But one thing that I can say that is beginning to give me hope. And I, yesterday was a tough day seeing a lot of progressives not win mm. um, primaries. But I, I you know, I, I, I keep thinking back, well, first off, uh, you know who's seen the Hernandez is who went up against Beto O'Rourke in Texas. Uh, another Democrat? She was a Democrat. And she was, you know, she's from a poor era of Texas. And she is... Um, oh. She's, uh, you know, extremely impressive woman. She's Hispanic. She she spent like four thousand dollars. I mean, she's got to be impressive. I mean, just based on what she was able to do, she spent four thousand dollars on her campaign. Okay, and this yeah. is she was working. She was having to work like a job, and uh, you know, you get held back significantly if you have to work forty hours from campaigning. Uh, Beto O'Rourke was being paid by for being a congressman while he was going all over Texas. Um, right. So he didn't have to worry about, you know, oh, I've got another job where i got to do it. So he had a lot of time to go wherever he needed to go. And um, she had $4,000, and she got, I think, 200,000 votes in that election. And he got, you know, he still beat her, you know, but she got a considerable portion of the electorate. And then with Paula Jean Swearingen against Manson, yeah. he spent $2 million. Yeah, he spent 10%. 
and got 30% of the vote. I mean, to me, that to me says there is something. Ha- it's not going to happen as fast as we think, but something's happening, and we have, it, to keep, we have to keep pushing. It's taking a lot more energy for them to to stop it. That's for sure. And right. the, Russia, the Russia thing, and a lot more violence. Like the Russia thing is, is a lot more violent in a way. It's a lot more, uh, what do you call it? Um, I want to say obscene. I can't think of the, quite the word. It's blatant. Like real blatant. Like they have to get a lot more blatant now in order, in order to right. stop this. They're really um, not even hiding things anymore. They're not even like pretending that they're, you know. You notice today that people are like, you're just seeing things a lot where people aren't even trying to hide their corruption or their bad behavior. Um, like, like Nancy Pelosi saying after that, that, that tape came out with the intercept where, yep. when it, when he, you know, who I'm talking, you know, and then I know exactly what you're uh, going to say. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Levi Tillman is, a, he's a congressman here and I mean, he's running for Congress here in Colorado and he's oh, the guy Colorado on the Tuesday. tape. Oh. Yeah. But, yeah. And, um, uh, I'm been doing, you know, uh, I did some door knocking for him a couple of weeks back and I'm going to do some this weekend, but, um, he, you know, Kenny Hoyer's conversation and then having Nancy Pelosi go, well, you know, we, we, that's what we do. We, you know, like we, There's yeah, nothing inappropriate that. about that except There's the fact that he recorded yes. it. <laughs> it was a fact that he recorded it. That was a bad thing. Exactly. You know, yeah, but if there was nothing wrong with it, then what's recording? What's wrong with recording it if there was nothing wrong with it? Right. Right. You know, because you're being, you're, you're, you're being, you know, shown, shown for what you are and then to have her go, not go, oh, yeah, no, we need to change that. You know, or I wasn't aware, although she was very much aware. Um, not even pretending anymore. Uh-huh. To try to try to show a face of fairness or, you know, it's like, well, this is how we do things and there's nothing inappropriate about it. And right. well. I don't think that's going to hold for that much longer for a lot of people, you know. And I'm I'm really waiting, I'm really waiting, though, that, the people still buy into it. There is a right. large group of people that still yeah. still work at the behest of the Democratic Party because of mm-hmm. the evil guy on the other side of the aisle. And it, I feel like, like, when is that going to change? Is that going to change? I mean, there's a large population, or maybe it's a very loud part of the population that that is that is basically doing what the Democratic Party wants them to do, not not just as a command, but because they believe it. Like, we must stop the Republican, therefore, stop trying to make our candidate better. This is a lot better than the Republican, and that's that's good enough for now. We'll talk about it after the, after the election's over. I just wonder yeah. at that point that the people themselves, more than just hardcore progressives, are going to say enough is enough. Well, I think in the, in the, in the uh, I think with the Trump Clinton um, election, I think we did see people starting to go. Uh, I think there is a huge part of the electric that just doesn't vote because they, they don't want to choose either one. They, they're really turned off. We know half the electorate didn't. It's a matter of tapping into those people and getting them out to vote and getting them to believe in somebody. But they are so incredibly jaded, I think. It's, and some people just never voted because they've just never believed in, in politicians or going to ever do anything good for them. So um, it's it's really going to take, it, it could take, you know, like we said, it, it may have to take some big tragic event or, you know, 
we just keep pushing, you know. And, you know, I know all these people, like what Matt, Matt, Matt Iglesias came and said, um, you know, after, I think in this sort of rubbing people's noses in it, that people still have a preference for the establishment. It, it's proven, like, with this uh, last, last yesterday's um, election, that people still prefer the establishment candidates and proves that, you know, real Twitter isn't real life. Well, actually, when we have people far less into the yeah, that's what he said that Twitter isn't Twitter isn't real life. And yeah, of course, Twitter isn't real life. You know, there is a very strong lefty Twitter that you know will when people say this about this person or will come after them on on, on things, and you get this sense that there is this really strong progressive thing going on that he's trying to say there seems like a progressive strong progressive but that's just the way twitter makes it appear oh that's so horrible is that it's like if the news gave them any kind of reason if the news didn't actively suppress them then then let's see what happens then let's see what happens didn't actively suppress them if paul and had two million dollars and was covered by the triple c didn't do what they do right right they're putting he's forgetting the fact that they're putting their 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 feet and their hands and everything they've got on the scale, so that yeah yeah he's acting as if it's a fair game win. yeah wow how disingenuous is that that was you know that is like oh the people no it's not the people that are 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 have a taste for the establishment or prefer the taste of the establishment it's that the people don't aren't being informed of these other options. Hmm. They're not, yeah. you know, I'm sure there was probably a ton of people in West Virginia that just went, well, Joe Manchin, I know Joe Manchin. I don't know who the He's better than a Republican. He's better than that uh, right. former coal guy, whatever. Right, um, yeah. And, and if you notice what, you know, one of the things that I started thinking about that strategy where people are like, oh, they're using the Pied Piper strategy. Well, I think they kind of knew he would lose in West Virginia, but I think they knew he would distract the media from covering more so, because he was so crazy. What then? Distract them from Paul Jean Swearsen. Yeah, would would distract them from covering Mansion's challenge. Right. You know, the fact right. that he was being challenged. They could they could then justify putting the story on what's his face, who only got eighteen percent, I think, or something, some much smaller percentage of the vote than I think. The former coal guy who looks like uh, who looks like uh, uh, the uh, an Undertaker, like res- old wrestler guy. Called the Undertaker, right. with light powder on his face and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> All right, yeah well, the guy that is responsible for so many people's deaths. You know, like yeah, the, yeah, the coal, the coal miner, the twenty nine people died under his watch. He went to jail for it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they knew that that was going. To, they could make that the story. They didn't have to follow this what was going on with Mansion. Even okay, though well, there was that was where the real story was. Right, right. Um, I have a something that I think would be appropriate to close on, but I want to, before I do that, I just want to give you the floor, and is there anything that you want to say before we close out? No, I'm good. We talked for a long time. <laughs> I know. It was all over the place. It wasn't quite yeah. the less, your lesson as I as I anticipated. But um, Okay, so what I, I just thought just something that gives me hope, uh, especially after talking with Bill, well, more so before talking with Billy, I'm curious, I'm really curious what's going to happen, but my interview with Billy, who's the guy that protested Bernie, um, he, according to him, and I don't, I don't believe it's true, or at least I don't believe it's as true as he says, according to Billy, is half of Bernie supporters are now not just no longer supporting him, but actively going to work against him. 
because of the Rus- significantly because of the Russian narrative. And I, I agree that he's pushed. The, I mean, I guess got to get a little bit of background here. So, you know, Bernie has pushed the Russian narrative. He hasn't constantly pushed it by any means, but but he definitely has pushed it. Um, he had like he, one tweet in particular where he said, "I agree. I do think that the Russian did try did work to make the people go against Hillary Clinton. Like something really like whoa. That's like." But I mean, isn't there, there some sort of like somebody who's like like there's a question about whether or not he's controlling those tweets? That's exactly that's exactly what someone brought up, and I've heard that too. And even if that's true, he definitely still has said Russia stuff, even if it's not that account. But he definitely has yeah, said yeah, it. Yeah. So I, I believe that that's true. He he has perpetuated it. He has not done it at high frequency by any means. No, no, but it has no, been no. it has been consistent. So I agree with that much of it. But but to, to but to him, it is egregious that even once because he's the person he's a much he's a he's a pretty aggressive protester. So he suffers mm-hmm. at you know the Russia used as an excuse to crush dissent. He suffers at that much much quicker than other people because he's mm-hmm. he's a much more assertive, aggressive kind of protester. So he's right. more angry about it, and therefore he's. He decided to protest Bernie about it. But he was saying it more for himself. It's more amplified for him. Right. I, I think that's true. I think that's true. So, you know, to a lesser extent, real progressive gets it and I get it and you know, all of us get it. But he gets it much quicker. What was gonna say? So he said that he believes that half of Bernie's support supporters are now not only not supporting him anymore, they're working against him. I don't think that that's quite true as to the level that he's saying. I think, you know, the Bernie or Bust are angry with him because Hillary. He pushed Hillary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he said he always said he always said that he was going to support the Democratic nominee, so I don't have a problem with that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't support Hillary. I put a vice grips on my nose and voted for her, and I'm never going to do that again. Um, the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but he always said he was going to do that, so I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. He 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 also said that he was going to go all the way to the convention and fight, and then three weeks before the convention, he endorsed Hillary Clinton. So that's a little bit of a betrayal. I understand that. I'm actually a little bit upset about it myself. I'm not devastated by it, but mm-hmm. I understand that. That's you know. Um. So you know, so he says half of his supporters are no longer not just not supporting him, but are going to actively try and fight against him. And I'm like, okay. I don't see that. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true for a significant portion. Half, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy half. Significant portion, because here's the thing. You know how we say people aren't really worried about Russia. People aren't. You know, for some people, they're really they're obsessed. They're like they they think they're going to get to some bottom of some mystery. You know, the people that are really into the Russia gate love Robert Mueller and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're they're like in a weird way obsessed. And I think there are some probably Bernie supporters that are obsessed with the fact that he, he is not fighting this narrative and he is kind of, he's, he's on occasion, you know, kind of played into it. But I really don't think that the number is anywhere near half. I think it's a very small, the same way there, I don't think the people that are obsessively thinking about Russia Although there are, you know, definitely there's people out there that are like, you know, Russia did something, Russia did something crazy. Um, but I do think that there actually is more people who are like, I'd like to hear 
more about you know some of the real stuff that's happening. Like we want to we want to know what you know what's happening with Flint, what's happening. There's people out there that want to know. Yeah. Give us the news of. of what we actually care about. Yeah. Yeah, stuff yeah. that we care about. You know, we you know. Which is exactly um, what Bernie's whole brand is. Right. Right. Yeah. Like focus on the real issues, and um, I think in a way when you become really super political, you can amplify things more. Um, t- things seem more amplified to you, but I don't know if it's happening out in the real world to the degree that we think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I he's steeped in it. He's, his friends are that, and he's steeped in it. And Yeah, he's yeah. steeped in it. And, and, and I understand where he's coming from. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, God, Bernie, really? When I saw some of that stuff, I was like, do not don't do this. Like, I can expect this from everyone else, but not you, because this is, this, I knew from the moment they started really kind of pushing it, that it was, you know, I remember when, 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 uh, what was it, Hillary brought it up into a debate, and I thought, really? Is that happening? What's this, you know, what's this all about? But then when I really started learning about it, I was like, this is not, Something's up with this. You know, this just does not seem right. And so I was really disappointed when he wasn't more skeptical and sort of refrained, you know, from, from falling for the whole Trump-Russia hmm. stuff. I mean, I've, I've, and, and the crazy thing is, is people get very, very, like the people that are really into this is going to bring down Trump, they're so protective of this story. And, you know, I haven't heard much from them, uh, from the people that I know who, who kind of, talk about it um, and kind of are hoping that this is something's going to come from it. Um, I haven't heard much from them, and I really do think, you know, when Mueller came out and said, essentially, we're not really investigating the president, like, he's, we don't think there's, you know, essentially he said that he doesn't, he didn't say it in these exact words, but it was, we don't see any connection, we don't see any connection between Trump and colluding with the Colluding with the There might be financial stuff, but there's not necessarily. Right. Anything. Not obviously, right? Yeah, I, we don't I, we don't see that there's there's a real you know there's a real connection here, and between the president and having done something really nefarious with with Russia. So I mean, and I haven't heard much 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 talk about it as of recently from the people that have been really really supporting this narrative and hoping it's true. Um, right. So it stems you know, from. I think it stems from. Uh, not stems from, not Russia, but but the criticism of Bernie stems from, and this I definitely agree with, is he has not stood up and said the Democratic Party screwed me, screwed yeah, my people, the, the, all over the place. I mean, he did little stuff here and there of like filing lawsuits and stuff, like for I think Arizona and so on. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but he didn't. He basically treated each election, each primary, as as if it was totally valid. And that right. I think is just horrible. I think it's really bad. I think it's I think it's bad that he hasn't done that. Um, I think he he you know I wish he was you know there's part of me that wishes he'd start a third party because you know he is an incredibly yeah. popular J- Jimmy Dore. Yeah, Jimmy Dore yeah, was saying I mean, just I, the other day, what if it, what if Bernie, Tulsi, Nina, and maybe you know, a few select other people that he would lose? He would absolutely lose, but it would be an earthquake. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the I don't know anything. I'm not sure if anything will ever change the Democrat. I know Jimmy Dore likes to make the argument that you know 
if Bernie would have ran as an independent, he would have still lost to Trump. But I mean, Trump. But the thing is, is that is a counterfactual because that's what, we can't really know. And I think what the Democratic Party would have done very successfully if Bernie would have done that is to destroy Bernie Sanders' career mm. completely. I because think he's that, because have, deliberately they sabotaging. They yeah, yeah, well, he absolutely was split the vote. He absolutely was split the vote. That's yeah, for and sure. Would have, they wouldn't have needed to blame it on Russia. They yeah. would have blamed it all on Bernie Sanders, and they would have yeah. crushed that movement, which is what the oligarchs really would have wanted, was the Bernie Sanders movement to be completely crushed. Yeah, and I think point. Bernie knew that when he ran, he, didn't, he, he, he had to have known that by that point he couldn't jump ship and run with the Green Party or run as an independent because he knew he would split the vote. And he knew, you know, when we know what they did to Nader for, for just, you know, <laughs> getting 5% of the vote or whatever, yeah. You know, whatever. And uh, with, with Gore. So, I mean, I think... With Bernie, I think they would have had their perfect scapegoat. They would, and they would have gotten rid of, you know, this Russia thing, as you pointed out, is sort of um, a sort of tangential way to get to the Bernie movement. It's not direct. They would have had a much more direct route to destroying the Bernie Sanders movement. What this sort of, you know, economic justice, racial justice. But but economic because we can't have I, I don't think you can have all the other justices without getting to the economic justice. But this yeah. huge because um, I do think everything's sort of intersectional. Yeah, so, even even yeah. racial even even racial tension is I think you know racism I think substantially is rooted in economic justice. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, economics is survival. I mean, that's the very heart of economics is how we survive. And so um, you can't. You can't look at all the other social ills and social problems that we have and go, well, you know, econo- economics is something else you got to fix later. you got to fix these. They, they work in tandem with each other. And at the, at, at, the, at the core of it is often these economic inequalities. So, um, but I think, I think they would have had a more direct route to crush the burning movement. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. And now they have this sort of indirect route of like, well, we're just going to make them all, we're going to turn them from, from Bernie Bros to Putin puppets. Right. So so what 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 gives me hope is the Parkland teenagers. The teenagers in, that started from Parkland. And yeah. because I have faith, I have no clue, but I have faith that there's more of them than these so called fifty percent that Billy was talking about. Right. And they've been on the internet their whole lives and they have not been the target of smears Bernie Sanders smears or correct the record or, you know, lit the actual right. Twitter bots of like Sally Albright's Twitter bot farm. And Bernie Sanders, as best as I can understand, is like a John Lennon celebrity to them, like a Beatles mm-hmm. celebrity to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And those amazing videos, right. So it seems like they might be a significant force to add on to what we had in 2016. I'm hoping. Yeah, and they're all going to be voting age. If, they're, if, if we can get... If the hard thing is, is do we know young people are as political as we want them to be? <laughs> you know, that, that's... I mean, yes, they are... That, um, those kids stand out amongst a lot of other kids, and will all the kids... Will, 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 will be a big, you know, I mean, I think they have to realize that 
the deck is stacked against him. I mean, the, the reality is, is neoliberalism is, Ponzi, is this giant Ponzi scheme. And, you know, the first at the trough were the, were the baby boomers, so they're doing well for the most part. But then mm. there's, there's the boomers that are struggling. And then you have the, wow, the, 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 the Gen X. Gen X, and then you have, you know, in Gen X, you know, got lot, you know, got, got the leftovers, and what would what was ever left over got a little bit of that, and then millennials are getting much next to nothing, and then Gen Z is going to have nothing at all. The first generation that's going to be worse off than the, yeah, like Bernie Bernie has said that this is the first generation that's actually worse off than their parents. Right, and if these young kids, if this is what they, that their sense of Bernie Sanders is, he's going to, you know. But it, bring an end to this rigged system that's causing all these problems, not just in our country, but all over the world. And they're willing to get political and they're willing to go out and do what needs to be done. You know, go and, and get involved in politics, not just vote, but also get involved, have a certain number of them getting involved, doing, you know, working with candidates and going door to door and doing protests and doing all this stuff. Then, then, you know, I think, I think we're, we're, I think the, the pendulum has to swing in the other direction. And I, I get the same hope from seeing young people like the Parkland team um, taking such strong political stances. I think I mean, we haven't seen teenagers do stuff like that in a very long time. Yeah, literally standing directly toe-to-toe with politicians. Then right, them and not, not backing down and not being afraid to, 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 to you know, talk back to them. You know, mm-hmm. like you're a public servant. You know, you're not some god. You're a public servant. You're you're a servant of the public, and I think that's how we have to see politicians, and we often don't. You know, the people who have this sort of admiration for them are the people who do have the blue no matter who mentality instead of going, no, yeah. instead of seeing them, they're your servants. They're supposed to be doing things for you. They're supposed mm-hmm. to be making your life better. And them saying we can't do these things because these are too big of ideas, and you accepting that blindly. It has to do with the fact that you see these people in more of a celebrity way or a holier-than-thou way, mm-hmm. and you, you, you trust everything that they're telling you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the young man, Parkland teen, the most prominent one, who was insulted David by... David Yeah, David Hogg was insulted by, who was it, Ann Coulter insulted him, like radio host or yeah. television host. Yeah. And he... He knew exactly like this real savvy response, oh, yeah. like yeah. like really quick thinker and like you know, let's contact her and she apologized 24 hours later because she lost like 12. It was like wow, that was like a oh, very yeah, was, savvy political response, very quickly. What's her name? What was her name? Uh, Laura Ingram. Oh, was it? Laura Ingram. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah and but she's, you, she's an Ann Coulter type. Right. Right. You said you said uh. uh Blue, what was the blue thing? Blue, you know, no any, matter. Blue, no, no matter, matter who. who. Yeah, no. Nina Turner says uh, we ain't just we don't want uh, just any old any old blue. Is it any old blue just won't do? We want our Bernie blue. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we want people that are really going to. And the thing is, the one thing also that kind of concerns me is seeing people that might be claiming they're progressive because they know that that's a way to maybe winning a primary or winning, you know, getting a, getting a seat in Congress, but they're actually, you know, they'll go, they'll go along to get along once they get into Congress, which is, will be very depressing. Enrich, or which means enrich themselves. They, they don't, they right, just are right. enriching themselves. They'll, yeah. They'll start to play the neoliberal game and do exactly yeah. what all the other neoliberal. That's really what it is. That's really what neoliberal, mm-hmm. it, neoliberalism is, is enriching yourself. 
Yeah, yeah, it's about you. It's about putting your, yourself first and it's all about the individual, not society. As, as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no society, only the individual. You can't get much more of a go out and get yours, <laughs> you know, pep talk. Right, right. It's depressing. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been all over the place, but it, I, I really, no, but. How fun was, taking this all sort of stream together. I'm sorry. No, no. I, the only thing I'm going to cut out is just, you know, when I, I'm not going to be cutting out that much. I uh, just like awkward, little awkward things here and there. And, and it was, it was very interesting. It was all over the place. It was totally not what I expected. Um, but I, I think it was great. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, we didn't stick as much to the MMT, but I think I think you can't help if you're talking about MMT to start talking about the bigger political landscape, anyways. Uh, oh yeah, we talked about MMT a long time ago, didn't we? <laughs> 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 I didn't realize how off track we got. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know what else is there really. I mean, we we get it. Both of us get it. I mean, I know it. I I know that the things that I don't get, and I know the things that I get. You know, the problem is the people who think they get it but actually don't. Um, but, yeah, no, this this was very interesting. Thank you for doing this. And, uh, yeah, thanks. Good. Thanks for asking me, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll see you back on Twitter and I guess a little bit on Real Progressive. I only know you from Twitter, pretty much, aside from that one comment you made when I shared, like, a, a tweet of yours or something like that. And, yeah, it was some something important, and I, I don't remember what it was, but then you said, thanks, on Facebook, and I was surprised to see you on Facebook. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, um, I I'm, I'm, I kind of just retweet a lot of other people's stuff. I'm gonna put a lot of stuff up with my own, and then a lot of times I'm reading everybody else's comments. It just, you know, I, I like Twitter, but it, you know, you can end up spending your life on there sometimes if you're I know. not careful. I know, like Bless people you. like people like uh, uh, Kamala Harris as a cop, Beth Lynch. Like, yeah, wow, she's so prolific. She is she, prolific. She, she writes very, she writes really great and interesting stuff, but it's like, how yes, do you do that much? <laughs> like her brain is a constant factory for these really sharp critiques. I and know. I don't know how she does it, and she she's a good writer. Is mm-hmm. I think is the big part is that she's 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 got a she she can be very very succinct. With, I mean, she's perfect. You know, her brain must be perfectly designed for Twitter because I think she's extremely succinct in getting across a very searing yet you know, information-packed tweet, which is not always an easy thing to do. That's interesting. Um, yeah, that's that's true. Um, I actually, just I just comes to mind, like, the uh, Jules X. Yeah, she's another know. one. She's, she's my personal anger translator. Like, <laughs> I consider her and Jimmy Dore are, like, like, two of my, like, most important anger translators. It's like well, yeah, that, think that's what I'm feeling. That's if I if that's what I would say if, if I wasn't a, you know didn't want to actually record my kind of anger in public. Like that's what I would say. Like when Jimmy goes off sometimes and Jules goes off sometimes, and it's just like I'm laughing. It's like they totally, you know, that's what I would say if there was no consequences to saying things like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I think it's very cathartic particularly when you, and, and also you, you can learn a lot. You can learn a lot of stuff from a lot of people on Twitter, um, particularly a lot of the things that they post that you wouldn't normally come across. Um, but I think it's extremely cathartic, and it's good to feel like, okay, I'm not alone. It was kind of like coming across for me, coming across Katie Halper and going, 
oh, wow, there's a voice out there in the wilderness that is, mm. you know, is expressing these thoughts that are in my head much in a much better way. But, you know, this person is, is articulating for me what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that, that was like a breath of fresh air. So, like, in a way, kind of, I think for a lot of people, you know, who feel, who know that this is going to be a slog and this is going to be a parallel battle, it's not going to happen overnight, um, but they feel like there's something happening. You know, I think lefty Twitter is kind of um, a comforting place at times, although at other times you're just like, i got to get off. <laughs> this is too much. I can't anymore. Yeah, it's, it really is a rabbit hole. It's so I really had to stop following a lot of people or, you know, mm. it's just like, oh, it's so interesting, but it's just like, I I just don't have time for this. I just don't have time for it. It's really right. hard. I I get um, it completely. Yeah, because it can yeah. suck you in. Suck mm-hmm. you in. Mm-hmm. All right, Kathleen. Thank you very much. It was nice to finally thank meet you. you. Sort of in person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like I know you. Yeah. So I'll see you back on Twitter. And uh, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for talking. It was really nice. Thanks for, having, uh, thanks for asking me. It was okay. it was a, it was different than I expected. It was very fun. So thanks. Not that Good. I thought it wasn't going to be fun, but I didn't. Ah. I thought it would be <laughs> different. All right. I thought I'd be like sweating and stuff. So thanks so much. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Next time. Bye bye.